I was in a meeting the other day, and I was really frustrated. I don't know what had my hair on fire. And a guy walked up to me after the meeting. He puts his hand over my heart, and he says, Remember, God thought enough to make the mountains and the skies and the seas, and he still took time to meet you. And I said, Thank you, sir. I gave him a big hug. And I said, This this is why you come to a meeting. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares, episode 26. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guest and provide you with a front-row seat to the recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I am a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program. Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I'm glad you are here, and I hope you find what you are looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. Damon Dobson, alcoholic addict. How long have you been sober? Tuesday will be 10 years. Can you tell us about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where you were born? I'm going to join the group of people that were born at Baylor Hospital. All right. <laughs> I think we're running 80%, man. My early childhood, we, uh, it was fun, but it was uh, very hectic. We moved a lot. When I say a lot, I went to, uh, went to a lot of different schools. I went to kindergarten at one school, first through third at another school, fourth and fifth at another school, sixth, seventh, and eighth at another school, in high school at another school. Why? Military stuff? Why were you moving? My dad was very successful. He started out very, very poor. Mm-hmm. He was uh, one of eight kids. They lived in a quadplex. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, when I say very poor, I mean very poor. And his dad was an alcoholic. And so he, he learned to install floors. Okay. And then he just, him and his four brothers worked together. And then he decided at some point that I don't want to be an installer anymore and had some people offer him to, if you'll go into business, I'll be your customer. And so he went from a very poor guy to a businessman, to a very, very successful businessman, to a very, very, very successful businessman. And he's, got, he's, he's the founder of two of the most successful flooring companies in Dallas, wow. Dobson Floors and First Floors. Yep. So you went from living in a very small house in Seagaville to a nice house in Garland, to a nice house in Lake Highlands, to a nice house in Sunnyvale. So you keep moving on up the economic ladder. You move from small house to bigger house to bigger house to bigger house, and you drag your kids along with you. By moving a lot, yeah. I was always the new kid in school. Yeah. So I always got picked on. That's hard for any kid, whether you're alcoholic or not. Yeah, you walk in the first day of school, and you're the new, you're, you're the new kid, and everybody else has lived there their whole lives. Yeah. You're the new kid. I had spit wide shot at me in school. Yeah. I was always picked on. Yeah, you had to fight and, your way into the in crowd or hang out. Oh, I learned, I learned to throw fists at an early age. <laughs> I mean, it was right. always a fight yeah. at lunch or after school. Yeah. Always, always fighting. What do you think about the genetic, and I don't know if there's any way we can prove this or not. Some scientists say it's true or not, but... Um, do you feel like the, the, the disease of alcoholism is in a, on any level hereditary or genetic? And sometimes it skips a generation because you said your grandfather was an alcoholic, but your dad was not. Is that what you feel like? 
none of well my aunt pat uh-huh. or was an alcoholic and uh-huh. she died at like 38 okay from alcoholism stroke to the liver terrible she's the one she's the one of my aunts and uncles that drank okay the rest of them would i mean i have one picture of my dad uh-huh. and it's a great picture he's got, the one picture of facial hair he has he's he's holding it he's holding a cooper libra uh-huh. and a mustache at DAC Country Club, mm-hmm. it's, it's my it's my favorite picture of my dad. Yeah, holding a drink. I don't think he drank that drink. <laughs> I think he held that drink to look good. Yeah, he just doesn't drink. Really? I mean, he he'll go years without drinking. So, what do you think about the hereditary deal and it possibly skipping a generation? Uh, do you believe that? Because I, think, I truly think it skipped that generation. Okay, I truly think it skipped. So, you think it's gen- you think it possibly is genetic and hereditary, the gene or whatever? My kids don't drink. I mean, my daughter yeah. would. Her, her, and my wife will sit in the living room, mm-hmm. and they'll watch, you know, the, the wives of Atlanta or whatever they're watching, <laughs> and they'll have a glass of wine, and they'll leave the cups in there, and there'll still be wine in it the following morning. Uh-huh. And I'm like, how do you do this? Yeah. And you know, and my son will have literally. He used to live in Austin. I'd go down to Austin to see him mm-hmm. and hang out for the weekend. Mm-hmm. And my dad would go to Shreveport, and they give him, you know, when he'd go to Shreveport to gamble. They'd give him a, a fifth of whatever the liquor of the day was mm. to bring back when he'd stay there for free. And so I'd have a box, like a traveling box, a moving box, full of like nine or 10 or 11 or 12 bottles of fifths of liquor mm-hmm. to take to my son to give them to him. Yeah. Take them down there. Yeah. He'd put them up in his pantry. And being the alcoholic, I could not notice them. Yeah. And so I'd look when I opened the pantry to grab flour or whatever we we're cooking for breakfast and i'd see these 15 bottles up there yeah i'd go back six months or a year later and the levels hadn't moved mm-hmm. i'm like how do you do this how is it possible for you not to have had one drink of any of this in six months i pray to god i have a son and he's 12 and a lot of the podcast listeners know about that and i pray to god i have that experience no well, it's it that's what i'm praying to god that i have that experience it is so good for the heart <laughs> to know that my kids don't do anything yeah. like what i did thank god i was crawling out windows <laughs> i was selling drugs <laughs> i was throwing horse apples at police cars oh my god you sound like me you gangster <laughs> um what were your thoughts on spirituality as a, as a child were you getting exposed to any spiritual stuff or religious stuff that was the most confusing thing ever to me. Yeah, I went to a First Baptist Church school as kindergarten. Don't remember anything about it. All I remember is like first and third grade. On Sunday morning, I would get dressed up, stood on the curb, get on the church bus, go to church. Don't remember anything about it. Never, I do not recall in my life ever going to church with my parents. But I do remember going to church kindergarten through third grade. That's it. Then I didn't go to church again until sixth or seventh grade. And then I went with a couple of friends. And I didn't go to church again until high school, where I was the most jealous kid of FCA and Young Life. What are you doing? What is this God thing? But I couldn't figure it out. And my, my little best friend in high school was Catholic, had the rosary beads. Had this, and I couldn't, he tried to explain God to me. Mm-hmm. It's like explaining a mathematic equation on three blackboards. I had no concept of what he meant. Okay, just it, I never, I never got God. The only God I had was when my 
mom would have me in first grade on the side of the bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That would that's literally my concept of God growing up. If I die before I wake, I pray, pray the, the Lord, Lord my, my soul, soul to take. take. That's it. That's my that's my prayer. All the way up till now. <laughs> Me too. That was. I mean, that was. I was it. jammed out on that as a kid. That until I got to college mm-hmm. and discovered I could gamble, and then it was, oh God, please don't make this three pointer. <laughs> oh God, please cover. Oh God, please don't don't complete this pass. You got your prayer life working. That's when I got my prayer life working. <laughs> that's my concept of God. Yeah. That's crazy. I lived in Reno, Nevada for a little while when I was drinking and drugging. And I got into the gambling thing, too, and I started to learn about the half points. You know what I'm saying? Like oh, the twig. Yeah, I don't know what it's called, the twig. Yeah. I was like, because I was placing bets, and they're like, well, that's six and a half points. I was like, what's a half point? They're like, you're going to find out. The half point's the twig, baby. You're going to find out what it is. And I ended up losing a lot. And uh, I used to bet at this uh, casino in uh, Reno, Nevada called the Silver Legacy. And they had a sports book there, and it was the nicest casino in town. And I went heavy uh, for a long time. And I bet with my heart and my emotions, without my mind. And uh, I just always bet on the Cowboys, you know. And so, anyways, it was a little bit of a disaster. I ended up quitting gambling based off of my results, my prodigious results of losing. And I was like, I can't gamble. I cannot do this. Um, When did you first become aware of alcohol, and what were your initial thoughts about it? Did you see your grandfather doing it? I mean, is that kind of where your first exposure was? It was, but I didn't realize that was my first exposure because I don't recall my grandfather standing up. I recall him is is the front part of the apartment or quadplex was the living area with the bathroom. The back was the kitchen nook area, just a split with the opening. And in that back part was his bed with a little cot. And he always had on light blue pajamas, kind of like the shirt you got on, mm-hmm. baby blue pajamas. And we'd come in, and Granny would sitting in her chair, and we'd go back there, and he'd throw his feet to the side and sit on the edge of the bed. And sometimes you could smell him, sometimes you couldn't, but you, you didn't know what the smell was. And then we'd go back there, and Dad would drag us back out if, we, if it was alcohol. And the first time I was heard the term alcoholic was when my dad said, Pappy's an alcoholic. And he explained to me the worst thing that Pappy ever did to him was he was probably 16 or 17 and got a job and came home after cashing his check and getting some stuff. And he brought home some aftershaving and uh, cologne and put it up in the little inset medicine cabinet. And the following morning, when Pappy came home, Dad went in there to brush his teeth and get dressed up and stuff. And the aftershave and the cologne bottles were laying on the floor because Pappy drank them that night when he came home drunk. Wow. That was my introduction to what an alcoholic was, that they will drink anything that has any amount of alcohol in it. And Pappy drank his aftershave and, al- and uh, cologne. And he said... Just pray to God, son, you're never like this. And I got like that. I never drank aftershave, but, you know, I got to the depths. Yeah, you got you got, you got got the alcoholism disease. But 13 was when I started. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. When was the first time that you took your first drinks, and what did it do for you? We moved out to Sunnyvale when, in 77. I guess my first was we were out at Texoma and the parties and stuff, and we were we would pick up the long necks and shoot bottle rockets out of them. That, and, you know, I'd 
go grab a beer out of the cooler and take it back and forth to the adults and stuff. That was my first, you know, take a sip out of there and stuff. Mm -hmm. But my first drink was out in Sunnyvale. We were partying. I don't know if it was a holiday or what, but we were staying over to, over my friend's house and we went out there and it was, I was 13 hanging around all the 18, 19, 20 year olds in a field. And they handed me a Jack Daniels bottle and said, you want to try some? And I said, what is it? They said, it'll change your life. And I took a swig. And I said, wow, that's horrible. And then I took another. And then I took another. And I blacked out the first night I drank. And I hurt like hell the next day. But I could not wait to do it again. How did you secure alcohol as a minor? Did you start getting into drinking a little bit more after that? Or what, tell me a little bit about the early days. I was tall. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was five eleven, six foot tall. Mm-hmm. I was able to drive. I did. I had a uh, hardship license at 15. And you could go down on Samuel Grand and go back down behind the the, the low parts down there. Mm-hmm. You could just walk in there. Now, my brother was three years younger than me, looked older than me his whole life. I could literally take my brother down there when he was 13. He could walk into the liquor store and buy beer at 13 or 14 years old. So we'd go in there and... No, I didn't need a fake ID because I looked older. Mm-hmm. I'd walk up there, sit twelve pack on there. They'd cash it for me. I mean, they just take, yeah. they'd take my money. So, from age fifteen on, I've been able to buy beer with or without a uh, ID. It wasn't very hard for me to secure out calls a minor in this town either. I was able to just kind of roll into a lot of places with cash and throw it on the counter and. Eight times out of ten, they'd sell it to me. Yeah, maybe like if this store wouldn't sell it, I'd just go next door. The, yeah, the, the, the liquor store done. They they just wanted cash. I would just hit yeah exactly cash. I always pay cash. You know, if if it wasn't this gas station that was going to sell it to me, it was the gas station next door. And we used to go down there off of uh, Webb's Chapel in Lombardi. Yeah, there's a street called Lombardi. It's kind of you know whatever. It's an interesting part of Dallas, but uh, that's where I would easily score what I was doing. And if they turn me away, I just stand outside and say, hey, will you go buy me some beer? The dude come outside, you hand him a little two extra dollars, and you got the 12-pack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd be like, buy me a six-pack. Here's 20 bucks. And exactly. The guy would be like, all right, dog. I'll be right back. He'd come Done. out. Yeah, he'd be like, here's a six-pack. I'm going to keep the change. I was like, right on, brother. I'll be here next Friday if you want to make some more money. <laughs> um, when did you start drinking on a regular basis? When did you get rolling on a regular basis? Uh, probably call it. In high school, my junior year, I got a girlfriend, mm-hmm. and so I, I would not drink during the week because I was a really good football player. Okay, what'd you play? What'd you, what'd you position? I played tight end. Okay, wow. I got called up to varsity on my sophomore year, mm-hmm. made all district my sophomore year, my mm-hmm. junior year, I made all metro, yeah. and my senior year, I made all metro, all district, all state. Oh, wow. Congratulations. And then, so I, I, I took that really, really serious, mm-hmm. so I only drank after the game on Friday night and on Saturday. Okay. That's the only controlled drinking I ever had in my life. Really? I, I worked out. I stayed in shape. I took everything serious. My grades and everything. I, when I was on the field, that was the only thing that mattered to me uh-huh. was school and that. After high, the minute I finished my last game of high school football, uh-huh. I dropped the jersey. I dropped the helmet. I said, I am done. I'm through. Let the party begin. Yeah. And I turned it up 12 notches. Wow. My dad was disappointed. He said, you're not going to. I said, I'm, no, I'm, I'm literally done with football. Why? Just because you wanted to party or just because it hurt too much or what? No. I, 
I just wanted to party. I literally just wanted to party. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of people that are in that boat. So let me, I did not play football, so I want to ask you a couple of football questions that I do not know the answer to. How exciting is it when you're in the huddle and they call your number for the play that's coming up? I mean, like... Dude, you get so jacked. You're, you're standing on the sideline, uh-huh. on you know, and you're on the defenses out there, yeah. and the coach call you over and he'll say, Dobson, come here. Yeah. He goes, we're going to run the 484 Y-Go, which is the, the alignment of the field, mm-hmm. the... The why, I'm the why. Mm-hmm. That's my position. Yeah. And the go is the go route. Uh-huh. So he's over there going to run this. We're going to call over there. Yeah. And so we're playing Highland Park, which we've never beaten. Okay. And he calls, he goes, the first play we're going to run here, and it's a play to Todd Graham, who made, he's the, he was the coach of Arizona State. He, I played with him. So we're going to run this play, and then second play we're going to do this. We got the 10 plays scripted out. And you know the second play is to you. Uh-huh. First place to Todd, second place to you, and you're over there. And you literally, you can't focus. You're so excited. <laughs> just run the first play. You're the second play. Yeah. You get excited, or he calls a reverse to you. You, you just get so jacked. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. You just see, I was just, I've never had that feeling, but I can imagine being in the huddle and them telling you, okay, we're coming to you. And you're like, hell yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you feel that adrenaline just go right to What's the What's really awesome is when you're running the play mm-hmm. and then, I used to play running back so you can see the field opening up and you can see things starting to part for you Yeah, and then you feel the ball coming towards you and it lands in your hands and then all of a sudden there's open field in front of you you're like oh hell yeah and then you start hearing the crowd roar and you're like I got this baby yeah yeah that's fun I want to ask you another question about football I, I surfed at a pretty high level for a long time and still do and so for me I know things that are ha- I know things are happening quickly and I know the decisions are being made and the water's moving around and I'm standing up and turning and making cutbacks and getting in the barrel and, you know, hitting the brake, hitting the gas, you know, just moving, moving the board around. But for me in those high pressure situations, it seems like a lot of times time slows down for me. It seems like it really slows down. I know it all happens within 15 seconds, but it seems like a minute sometimes. Does that ever happen in a football game where you're running your route and you look back over your shoulder and you see the ball coming? Do do things slow down for you or does it seem super fast? I swear to God, I could see the football turn one quarter at a time. Yeah, right. Coming to me. Isn't that crazy? That ball spinning just as fast as it can be. In a blur. I'm running down and I'm turning my head and I can see the ball turning one quarter rotation quarter at a time it just slows down and just land in my hand just soft like butter you talked about blackouts i'm gonna say did you ever have blackouts you told us that you had one at the beginning tell me about those blackouts and were they scary and were they of concern to you i lost periods of my life because i blacked out so often and how concerning was that to you it was terrifying you know thank you when my wife would walk that's the correct answer by the way when my wife would walk up to me and say do you even know what happened last night? And you, you look her in the eyes and you start trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together as to, I remember up to here. Yeah. And then she starts asking you a question and you have no earthly idea what she's talking about. And then she starts asking you another question and you literally, you might as well not have been there because you have no idea what you've done. And then she keeps asking you questions and you literally, I mean, it's, it's like she's watched a show and you haven't watched it. And she's asking you questions about this movie that you've never seen. Or you're taking a, she's taking this test and you've never taken this test. And she's going, how can you be so stupid? Yeah. You watched the movie with me. No, you've never watched this movie because 
you've never been there. Your body was there, but your brain wasn't. Wow. That's how terrifying it is. Could you feel them coming on, or do you just kind of slip into no, it? No, you just, it's kind of like going to sleep. You just kind of fade off and go to bed. Yeah. Wow. And then you wake up the next time. No idea. You have no idea. Did your wife know what was going on and know how to apply the proper term of blackouts to, to you, or did she finally figure it out? Did she figure it uh, No, there, there were times she'd go, you don't have no, you have zero idea what I'm talking about. You blacked out, didn't you? And you said, yeah, you were yeah. honest? Yeah. You, or did you always like, try to fake it? Or? No, there were times I'm just making shit up. <laughs> just absolutely making shit up. Try to, you know, just pulling stuff out of the air. How angry did she get at times about that? Furious. Furious. furious, yeah. So she was super concerned about them. No, I mean, there were, one of the most embarrassing times, I walked in there and there's cake on the floor in uh -huh. the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the cake on the floor she goes, you have no idea, do you? And I go, about what? She goes, you were laying on the floor eating cake, and you have no idea, do you? I said, oh. Thank God she didn't have a video camera at that point. Oh, they had the video cameras? Oh, I, I, I am so blessed that my wife and kids never treated me like David Hasselhoff. Because they had the ability. Why don't you talk about that David Hasselhoff video real quick? Because people will be able to find it on YouTube. Can you talk about that for a second? Do you remember? Oh, yeah. His daughter has a, pit, has a video of him in the kitchen eating a hamburger off the floor. Wasted. Black the milk. only reason my kids don't have that yeah. is because they chose not to use that. Yeah. Because there are times that I've, woken, that I've awakened or woke up in my back room with my... Uh, chair my recliner laid backwards and i'm facing the ceiling and i woke up and i'm trying to like a seal wobble to get myself up mm -hmm. and then stood my recliner up and my daughter's going you should be ashamed of yourself at five in the morning or two in the morning where i've just passed out and literally flipped my recliner over Oh, the whole thing the flipped The whole over. thing flipped over because I had the feet up. Oh, just, my God. I don't know how, but I flipped the whole recliner up. And they could have had pictures of that. Yeah. But they don't. And I completely blacked out. So you put your kids through a lot. They saw a lot of that drinking. Oh, yeah, yeah. How many kids do you have? I have a, I have a 34-year-old son and a 31-year-old daughter. 33 and 30. Wow. Well, okay. We'll talk more about them later. When did it occur to you that you may have a problem with alcohol? And what did you do about that thought? Oh, I knew I had a problem with alcohol when I was probably 19 years old, 18 or 19 years old. Wow, that's young, too. Well, you started drinking at 13. Well, it, I'm, I'm literally sitting up in a guy's loft, in Ralph's loft. A friend of mine, Ralph, played, he played baseball, and I played football in high school. And we went out one night at, uh, at Lee's Silver Fox in Terrell. And, the, and I spent the night with him. And I blacked out and I woke up the next day and he said dude you got to control your drinking he said you know you just go like into turbo mode and just hammer it he goes have you ever considered maybe just drinking a couple and maintaining a buzz <laughs> and, and that's 1983. I still remember the ex I can picture Ralph sitting there telling on the that. stool telling me this. <laughs> Have a couple and maintain a buzz. And it baffled me as to how's that possible to do that. 
That's from 1983. What did you do about that thought? I looked at him. I still, today, can't figure it out. Yeah. How's that possible? Yeah. Because he would have a couple of beers, and then somebody would offer him a beer, and he'd say, no, I'm good. I got a buzz. And I don't have that ability to say, I'm good. Yeah. I keep saying more, 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 more. Yeah, you don't have that brake pedal. You got that accelerator pedal. Exactly. Like Rick P. would say, I let the clutch out. (laughs) (laughs) I love Rick P. I miss that guy. Yeah, I do too. Um, Yeah, I had a girl come up to me and ask me the same question when I was like 17. Mike, why do you drink so much? And I just was like, wow, that's a a big question for you to be asking me. And uh, I, I started to realize that I had a problem at like 19, 19 years old. I started to realize I had a problem and... I got thrown into a drug and alcohol treatment center at 19 years old. I didn't stay sober, but I did go to a drug and alcohol treatment center at 19 years old called Timberlawn here in Dallas, and it didn't stick, but I learned a lot of valuable information there. I learned about the disease concept of alcoholism, and I learned about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, I learned a lot about myself. I ended up drinking again, but at 19 years old, I was. Uh, people were concerned about my drinking when I was 19. The, the Farmer's Branch Police Department was concerned. My parents were concerned. My girlfriend was concerned. My sister was concerned. I was not really concerned. I was not really concerned too much, but it seemed like a lot of people that were in the periphery of my life were concerned. What techniques did you use to try to control and enjoy your drinking? Oh, I used every technique possible. I would, I would drink beer. I would switch to beer and tequila. I would switch to vodka. I've tried the Bartleton James method, just <laughs> wine coolers. If I just drank only That's wine good. coolers. Didn't you used to get those in four packs? Four packs, Little yes. four packs of yes, the yes. James? And I would try, I'm only going to drink two four packs tonight. Oh, wow. The eight pack technique. <laughs> but then but then I would go back to the store to get tequila because oh, this was working. Don't do that, dude. The eight pack of Bartle James with tequila on top. Ugh. It's always got to be hammer the accelerator. Did you ever get alcohol poisoning on a particular drink and they never go back to it? I did on tequila. I got alcohol poisoning and got super, super sick on tequila and I could not drink it again just based off the smell and the appearance. Did you ever go through something crazy with any particular brand? Me and my uh, college roommate were going to go down to uh, Austin with my college girlfriend. She, she lived, her parents lived in Austin. And so we bought two half gallons of Seagram 7. And he had a... What is that? Is that a... That's, that's a brown drink. Okay, like a whiskey. Yeah. Okay. I, and that's what he wanted to get. And the reason he went to Austin College was he had to complete college in order to get his inheritance. Okay. So he went as far away from Illinois as possible. Mm-hmm. And we were just going to go down there and, and hang out with Carrie and partying down on 6th Street. And we drank a half gallon on the way down to, from from Dallas to Austin. We drank a half gallon. Wow. Seven and seven. I remember falling out of a tree uh-huh. and hitting two branches on the way down and cracking ribs and throwing up and laying in bed for two days. And I've not had a seven and seven since. You <laughs> never went back to it. And that was in 1984. It broke you of it, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah it it was... literally broke me of it. Did you ever go through a period of denial with your drinking where you were like, eh? I mean, you were probably full-blown alcoholic at this point, but you were just denying it? Or did you, were, did you just accept it and keep going? Or what were you thinking? There were times I'd say, I'm not an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic. I got this. If I just drank this amount, if I just drank that amount... I can't be an alcoholic. 
I mean, yeah, I've, I've, fought, I've fought this for 20-plus years where I could do it, I could not do it. I stopped twice for six years. Tell me about that. My dad fired me. I worked for, I worked for my dad. I started playing way too much golf. Uh-huh. I was drinking. I had a four-year-old and a one-year-old. Mm-hmm. Literally was gambling on everything you could gamble on. Wow. Was playing golf. I, I was writing up forty, fifty thousand dollars a day in orders. Brought in our first production builder account. Mm-hmm. So I was writing the business, but I was cocky, arrogant, you know. Imagine that, a cocky, uh, arrogant <laughs> a young alcoholic. alcoholic. <laughs> yeah. By doing this, I was playing golf every day, literally five days a week, taking the weekends off. So I was on the golf course by 9, 30, 10 o'clock every day. Were you telling your dad you were trying to drum up business and stuff? Oh, I was, I was playing golf for business. But I was never taking account to play business. I was, I was with my golf buddies. And so I walked in one day, and he said, I need to talk to you, son. And I said, well, I got a lot of stuff to do. He said, I need to talk to you now, son. And I had to walk past my dad's office to walk, when you walk into business. And he says, I'm letting you go. How old were you? 26. With a one and a four-year-old? 26, 27, something God. like that. So I, stood, I set my pager down and emptied my stuff, went home, wallowed around in, my, in alcohol the rest of the day. And then told my wife, Dad fired me, and got real pissed off about it. Said, "Screw him! I'm going." And then bought a carpet cleaning machine. It was going to be a carpet cleaner for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. What was it mounted inside of a van? No, it was one of those portable ones. Okay. Called my I called my best friend at the time, Dana, and said, this, "You know, screw him. We don't need him." And da 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 da. Bought a van. Did some other things. Decided I was going to be a flooring installer and carpet cleaner. Okay. That lasted for about. Three weeks. Then dad called me up and said, if you want to come back and work, you can do this. But you got to quit drinking. So I quit drinking for six years. What was that period of time in your life like? Restless, irritable, discontented. Were you fighting it every day? How to tell me about that six years, man. I was short-tempered. And, and I got literally every every year on my sober day, uh-huh. my wife and my dad and my mom would say, "Congratulations, another year!" And it would piss me off that yeah. they would that they remembered and would tell me, "Hey." That's two years. Hey, that's three years. Hey, that's four years. And it would anger me. Oh, totally. I mean, that pissed me off, too. It would just piss me off that they knew I was sober another year. Yeah, it's almost like insulting. Were you doing work to try to stay abstinent and sober? Absolutely not. I never went to an AA meeting. Okay. I never did. I just white-knuckling it, pissed off at the world, yeah. working my ass off. I played a lot of softball. And I would literally... Now, all my friends were drinking and stuff, so I would show up. If, the, if it was a 6 o'clock game, I'd show up at 5.59. I'd walk on the field. I'd play softball. I'd leave at 7.01. And you weren't drinking around six years because your dad told you not to, but also in this, was there a secondary motive hanging out in the background that you said to yourself, I am not a skilled alcoholic at hiding the fact that I'm drinking because I black out all the time, so I can't cheat here. I can't, I'm not capable of cheating on drinking here and there. 
Yeah, I have zero. I have zero people skills. Yeah, I have zero alcoholic skills. I have zero coping skills. Yeah, you're like I can't. I would come home. Yeah, watch TV. Yeah. go to bed. Go to work. Ride work. My business grew because all I did was work. How much did you think about drinking and, and stuff like that? Alcohol. How much did you think about it? I avoided any and all situations with alcohol. Did you stop playing golf, or I, did you? Yeah. Really, I, I would play golf with everybody but my friends. Uh-huh. I'd go to any golf tournament, you know, any business golf tournament, mm-hmm. and if I showed up, it, I would not go to any of the scrambles mm-hmm. because the scrambles is a drunk fest. Okay, I mean, literally a drunk fest. You go to to a, a floor covering scramble. Mm-hmm. They start with alcohol. They end with alcohol. You can't get in a cart that they're not just hammering alcohol. All the carts are driving around are just handing out alcohol. Mm-hmm. So I had to really pick my friends. That, and I probably played with seven friends over six years. Wow. Can you talk about how you broke that six years of abstinence? What are we going to call that period? A period of abstinence? Yeah. How'd you, how, what, what happened that made you want to go back I, out? The first time, I don't remember why I went back out. I literally don't remember why I went back out, but I went back out. Okay. I went back out for three years. Okay. And then, and I didn't know at the time, my wife was about ready to leave me when I quit. My dad, my dad, my dad made me quit the first time. The second time, my wife was just about to leave me when God stepped in and said, you need to stop. And I think my dad called me too and said, you need to stop, you know, let's talk about your drinking. And I quit. And I quit again for six years. Mm-hmm. We lived, we'd moved to Sunnyvale. Mm-hmm. and lived out there. And I'd quit again for six years. And I, and I know my dad had called me because every time I'd quit drinking, my dad had called me up till now. Mm-hmm. And he called me and said, we need, can we talk about your drinking? So I just quit. So you were sober for six years, and then you drank for three, and then you were sober for another period of six years? Another period of six years. Before we talk about that second period of six years and your wife almost leaving you at the beginning of that, I want to ask you if you have any idea how scary or horrifying that was for your father to witness and be a part of and see and interact with you. Because think about, you told me about your grandfather hanging out in the back room and being an alcoholic, and now he's looking at his son doing the same debaucherous thing. Can you imagine how hard that was on your dad? Oh, it's got to be terrifying. Right. Be terrifying. Let me tell you how I moved out real quick. What do you mean? Like how? Like how, I got, how I left my house. Okay. To leave home. Okay. Talk about terrifying. Yeah. Me and my dad got in an argument. I was living at home. How old I, you? I'd come back from college. Okay. I, this, is how I, this is how I came back from college. Mm-hmm. I, he, I went to Austin College, went up there and drank. And I didn't really go to school. I went up there to drink. And smoke pot, which that's where I really started smoking pot mm-hmm. was in college because my roommate was a pothead. So I smoked pot for basically the first semester and drank. Played a little bit of football, and then I quit football. Mm-hmm. And then just drank and drank and drank and drank and drank. And when I first set of grades came back and said incomplete, FFF, incomplete, incomplete, FFF, W withdrawal. Yeah, just basically... <laughs> I didn't have a grade yeah, other yeah. than F or incomplete. <laughs> Dad said, I'm done. Okay. And I was, I was back at the house. He said, go pick your shit up 
and come home. I ain't paying for this shit no more. Okay. Party's over. Party's over. So I took his brand new truck. I drove to Austin College with the intent of drive up there, get your stuff, come back. Couldn't pull it off. I drove up there. I had $20 on me and his credit card. And his truck. And his truck. His brand new truck. Brand new diesel truck. 6.2 6.2 diesel truck. I'm nervous about what you're getting ready to say. So I go to Sherman. Yeah. I go up there. I see my friends. Yeah. I'm, load, I'm getting ready to load his truck up. Mm-hmm. And they go, let's go party. I drove to Denison. I had, remember, I got $20 on me. And his credit card. I knew if I used his credit card, I'd get busted. Yeah. So I bought two bottles of Mad Dog 2020. Okay. The next thing I remember is I'm driving... I've got Andy with me. We go out to a place called The Rock in Sherman where everybody goes to drink. All I remember is I'm, I'm getting ready to leave. Andy's, tr- this, this is where I'm slipping in and out of blackout. Mm-hmm. Andy's saying, I'm not riding with you. You don't need to be driving. I'm saying, I got this. And he goes, I'm not getting in the vehicle with you. Not a chance. Yeah. I said, that's on you, dude. Next thing I remember, I'm holding up the placard with my number on it, and my dad's walking in the Denison jail, and I've got vomit on me. How old were you? 19. Did you wreck the truck or just get pulled over? I wrecked the truck. I, well, I didn't. It wasn't too wrecked because <laughs> I drove off the side of the road through a field running from the cops in his four-wheel drive <laughs> truck. Oh my God! You're so alcoholic. I just I just tore I just tore it up on the fence yeah. on the on the barbed wire fence. Yeah, you wrecked it. Yeah. So you didn't he, return he, the same he, condition. Well, the bad part was he asked me, he says, "Where's my truck?" And I said, "I don't know." He goes, "What do you mean you don't know?" I, said, oh, no. I have no because I, I didn't know. I woke up in jail. Were you ever able to make amends? Just jump forward just a little bit. Were you ever able to make amends to your dad? And how did that go? I was. I would. You know, that's. The night step is the truly greatest part. Let's jump forward, you know, let's jump forward to that part. Like, can you talk, if you want to, if you don't want to talk about this, you don't have to, but I'd like to ask you about how you made amends to your father, you know, maybe kind of what you said and, and, and how it went. And go as deep as you want, or you can skip the question. Dude, it was so amazing. Tell me about it. My dad doesn't like to talk about feelings. He, <laughs> he's an he's an old guy. You know how old guys are. Yeah, now. we all know how old guys they are. Man. They do, don't want to talk from that about generation it. does not want to. They don't want to say I love you. Nope. They don't want to hug. No. They don't want to talk about their feelings. No way. Because <laughs> their so, dads didn't do it. I actually have him finally pinned down. We're in Vegas in Caesar's Hotel. Uh, Caesar's in Caesar's uh, Caesar's Palace. Mm-hmm. We're in the sports book. Okay. It's probably 7 a.m. in the morning. We're waiting to play in a poker tournament. I have been waiting and waiting and waiting to get him alone. It's me and him and the entire sports book sitting there. I said, I need to talk to you. I do not need you to leave this room. It's 10,000 square feet, me and him, and a bartender. I need to make amends to you. And so I start telling him all this stuff. I said, you know, I crawled out of your window when I was 19 years old and left you. I didn't 
let you know where I was for three weeks. That had to be absolutely terrifying for you. I can't undo that. I've stolen from you. I've tried to repay every penny I had. I've lied to you. I've treated you like shit. I've terrified you. I can't undo the things I've done to you. But what I can do is be a better son from here forward. That's all I can do. I can love you and treat you better from today forward. I can't undo the past, but I can be a better man starting today and go forward from here, if you'll accept me. I very rarely, I think twice in my life, have seen my dad cry. And a tear ran down his eye, and he got up and started walking away from me. I said, stop. I need you now. And he turned around and says, I can't do this. I can't do this. I said, do what you got to do. Just know that I'm making amends to you from my heart. And my dad stopped and he said, you're forgiven. And he walked away. But that's all I needed. That's all you need. That's powerful, brother. That's all I needed. Thank you for sharing that. And you know what? He's from that generation that that's the best he could do. That's it. That's the best he could do. Since then, he's given me a big hug. And every he, he tells me I love you all the time now. Yeah. He tells me I'm proud of you all the time now. Yeah. If I post something on Facebook, he says I love you all the time now. Yeah. It's literally changed our relationship. You've brought him so much freedom and joy because he doesn't have to suffer anymore based off of being worried about your ass. He's not terrified of me anymore. And what you're doing. and <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Because when you're blacked out, you don't even know what you're doing. So he has really no idea what you're doing because you're volatile when you drink. That's exciting. I appreciate you sharing that. Did you ever have any legal consequences due to your drinking besides getting arrested with your dad's truck up in uh, North Texas? Well, I had that. And then... Uh... <laughs> Hospital stays, legal consequences. Talk about well, that. I got a couple of PIs. Okay, public intoxication. Yeah. A little tangled. I've tangled with the police a few times. Mm -hmm. uh, I did have one. I had, I had a salesperson with me, and I was driving back from a job site, and I was on quite a bit of cocaine, and the salesperson had no idea. I met an old friend. He had some cocaine. I decided to do the cocaine, and I could feel my heart coming out of my chest. So I said, I'm driving. I drove right past the shop. Salesperson was with me. He goes, where are we going? I said, just hang on. Drove right past him, drove straight to doctor's hospital, walked in the emergency room and said, I've done a bunch of cocaine. I think I'm going to die. They took me straight back. What do they do? They put, me in, they put me in a chair. They started hooking me up to stuff. They gave me some medicine. They started, and they kept me there. And then the cops came in. Oh, no. The cops just talked to me. Yeah, what are they going to do? Wow, I bet that happens a lot at emergency rooms. But they, they shot me up with some stuff, some medicines, and mm. took my, my heart was going, -dum -dum -dum, just beating out of my chest. Yeah. And my blood pressure was high as shit, and mm. then they just brought it down. Yeah. And I stayed there for about six, eight, six, eight hours, and then they let me go. What did the employee that was riding shotgun with you do? Was he sitting in the car in the parking lot? I mean, was he aware? Of what he was came going? in and stayed in the room with me and stuff. And then, <laughs> no. and then his wife came and picked him up. And he asked me what happened. I said, I just had a bad reaction to something. Oh, you didn't tell him you I were never fired up on cocaine. I never told him. <laughs> the only other time I've really had something, I've got a scar here on my face, Mike. 
the doctor did a great job. Uh-huh. I was 19 years old, mm-hmm. just out, of, just got back from college. I was on college college break in January. Had a, I had my trunk was full of half gallons of tequila and vodka. Mm-hmm. Me and two of my buddies, high school buddies, were driving, going back to Sunnyvale, going back home. I've never taken this route home. I don't know why I was taking this route home, but the road takes a hard right and then a hard left. And I drove off the road yeah, and wrecked my car. And when I went, did, I went through, uh, no seatbelts, nobody wore seatbelts then. I went from the driver's, driver's seat out the passenger window. and Was it down? No. I went oh, through the passenger Jesus. window into the field, and the car was sitting on the passenger nose yeah. with the ass end up because it was a raised road. Mm-hmm. And I walked back up to a gas station, which is about a mile. And they said I walked in there and they said, I need help and my shirt's covered in blood. They called the, the ambulance. The ambulance came, picked me up and took me to the, to the hospital. And the, I was just reeking of alcohol. So the, they called the cops. Cops cuffed me to the gurney, asked me what was going on. And I, I could stick my tongue through my face. Your cheek. And I could feel about, I could I could touch my tongue with my finger. Through your cheek. Through yeah. my cheek. Mm-hmm. And they asked me what was going on. And I said, well, I wrecked my car. They said, or they said, what's going on? I said, my car's wrecked. I didn't say I wrecked my car. I said, my car's wrecked. Mm-hmm. And they asked me where it was last time I saw it. And I told them. They went down there and found the car. They said, who was driving? I said, I don't know. <laughs> so they couldn't give me a DWI because they didn't know who was driving. They said, who was with you? I said, I don't know. So they didn't know. And I, li- I literally didn't because I was in and out of a blackout. Mm-hmm. And they cuffed me to the, to the gurney. But then they couldn't arrest me, so they, I stayed there all night, and then they sent me home. And uh, Sewed your face up? They sewed my face up, and I remember the doctor telling me, the doctor, as he's sewing me up, he was so angry, and I'm coming in and out of blackout. He said, if I didn't have an oath... I'd sew you up like Frankenstein. Oh, my God. He was mad because he knew you were drunk and he's having to mess with you. And he's like, you did it to yourself. It's a waste, waste, waste. That just that stuck with me, though. I'd sew you up like Frankenstein. Golly, dude. If I didn't have an oath. I want to remind everybody that SoberShares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes read our show reviews, email me directly at mike at SoberShares.com with your comments and suggestions. I'd also like to encourage our listeners to email me at mike at SoberShares.com with any questions that you want me to be asking any of the guests in future episodes. If you can come up with some great questions you want me to ask, I would really appreciate it. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon on the bottom right-hand corner of the website that I will play back in your voice on the next episode. That'd be cool. We also have a uh, private Facebook group, so type in Sober Shares Podcast on Facebook. Ask for a request to join the group. I'll approve you, and you can get in there and see all of our private content there. I've got some pictures of the studio and some other really cool stuff in there. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal Donate button on SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than a minute, 
and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing a basket at the meeting to help keep sober shares open and operating smoothly. Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses like website hosting and editing hosting with the Adobe Audition um, programs that we use to do the editing. I want to mention our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward. I'd like to give a shout out to Stan M and David D and Drew from Ontario. Um, I want to assure you that I value your time and attention as a listener. Our sole focus at Sober Shares Podcast is to help people, and that guides everything that we do here. I want to slide into a little bit of listener feedback. We're going to first talk about Amy B. in reference to episode 25 with Megan C. This is what Amy said about Megan's episode. This is the episode that finally helped me get myself to an AA meeting for the first time. I have felt so many of the pains that Megan has felt, and that motivated me to make a change in my life. Thank you for what you do. I truly believe your podcast has helped save my life. Next is Judith K. Thank you for the podcast. I find the AA-based open talks very helpful. Next is Liz L. I have been listening to these every day. Thank you for making them. Ray S. The Third. Thank you for sharing these with us. They have helped me so much. Okay, David S. says, thank you, Michael. We can't do enough to get the message out. Will B. says, great way to get some recovery at any time of day. Awesome stuff, sir. Aaron L. says, these shows help me focus on being grateful and living one day at a time. Amy B. says, I absolutely love Sober Shares. I just finished up Stephanie Crawford's episode. She has a powerful story. Her episode inspires me. Thank you for what you do, Michael. Robert B. says, keep up the good work. John H. Jr. says, what a great tool in sobriety. I have been listening to these podcasts while on driving trips. They are a lot of fun. I am 100% grateful. This next one comes from Nathan S. I just wanted to say thank you for this podcast. I am 38 and have been drinking for real since I was 16 years old. In my early 20s, the consequences came, but I was able to ignore them. I now have two young kids and an awesome wife, and my life became unmanageable. What was one to two days every couple weeks turned into three to five days a week of drinking. I booked myself into treatment in June of 2021 for 30 days, and I loved it. It was my first time staying sober for over 14 days, and I do not know how long. Over the past eight months, I have only drank four times. Two of those were for one day, one was for two days, and the other was for five days. I also lost my license. I had my wife move out for a period and was politely asked to take a break from my work. My last relapse was five days ago, and it lasted for two days. But for the first time, I am scared. Not scared of losing everything, but scared of not grasping the program. I am ready. Here comes you. In the past two days, I have listened to nine episodes. I have avoided the rooms, ego, because I didn't think it would be my crowd. What if someone knew me there? Listening to you and your guest has me excited to attend meetings. I have been two nights in a row. I feel good. I have hope. I'm scared. That's okay. I should be. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I am hopeful. So shout out to you, Nathan S. Hopefully you're listening to number 26 here, episode 26. We love you and we care about you. We encourage you to keep going to those meetings. This one is from um, Double D. These are amazing stories of recovery and so inspiring to hear. I am on 
uh, episode 15 and I can't stop listening. I laugh, I smile, I cry and get hope to go on with recovery um, with every minute that goes by on these podcasts. Please keep them coming, Michael, and keep up the great work. You are great and awesome. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And then lastly, we've got one from Michelle A. Love, love, love these podcasts. The moderator leads the podcast without ego and with a heart for helping individuals find recovery, peace, joy, and their best life. If you'd like to leave some listener feedback for us that I'll be reading on future episodes, please email me directly at mike at sobershares.com. Hit us on our website, sobershares.com. There's a place where you can leave feedback on there, or you can go to any podcast hosting site like Google, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and leave us reviews there. I'd also like to request that you guys leave us five-star reviews on Apple and Spotify. That helps us show up higher in the search results, and the higher we show up in the search results, the more people hear the show, and the more people that hear the show, the more people will be blessed, and we can help. Mike, um, as promised, I was going to uh, send you a follow-up note to the one where um, I guess I could only find enough words to thank you for your podcast. Uh, then I was nine days sober, and I was still trying to make sense of myself and how my new life was unfolding. Um, I was still coming to terms with attending AA meetings daily, even three, four times a day during the first few weeks. Um, as I'm sending this to you now, I'm 65 days sober, and I'm trying to rebuild my life and clean up the mess I made during my alcohol and drug career. I now have a home group, um, which I do service with. Um, I have a sponsor, and I'm currently three weeks into a six-month workshop, which is taking me through the 12 steps in the big book, line by line. Um, I'm now accepting life on life's terms, and I'm learning to get back on track with my family, friends, and work. Um, but as you mentioned your podcast with many of your guest speakers, um, now that I've removed drugs and alcohol from my life, I'm left without my solution. And what remains is, um, is just me uh, with the whole of my soul. So I want to thank you again for your dedication to the fellowship and using your podcast to help many of uh, the recovered and recovering alcoholics, as well as those still suffering. Those are, I guess aren't sure if they're alcoholics themselves. Um, I still look forward to your podcast as you post them, and I appreciate every one of your guests for sharing their wisdom, strength, and hope, as their stories might just be that thing someone needed to help them get through their day. Thank you to Andrew in Ontario for reaching out to us. I want to jump back into our interview and get back to our guest and ask Damon how that second period of six years of sobriety ended and how he ended up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous in his first 12-step meetings. Okay, so the second six years ended, I was, uh, again, white-knuckling it, lived in Sunnyvale, out at a party with a bunch of uh, friends, and uh, we're out at a, we're out at Jay Bedford's, he's no longer with us, and we're uh, having a big party he's got and again oh, i don't need any help i got this i'm a tough guy no aa just white knuckling and they've got these wash tubs full of corona and miller light sitting around everywhere and you know people are you know they're, they're walking up to me and say, man I, I admire your strength and honor of not drinking and stuff you know and i'm good and stuff and sitting there watching everybody just got through playing little they're either playing badminton or volleyball, and we just played whatever game it was. And I'm a little hot and sweaty, and I walked over there, and I swear to God, one of the lights is spotlighting this beer. It's like it's just holding this beer, saying, drink me, drink me. And I'm standing there looking at it and said, golly, that looks good. That beer is calling my name. And I can't remember if it was a Corona or a Miller Lite, 
But I picked it up, and the sweat starts running down the side. And I spun the top off of it, and I'm just about to drink it. And Jay Bedford grabs my forearm. And he said, should you be having that? And I said, well, Jay, one won't hurt me. He said, are you sure? I said, it's my life. He said, okay. Two weeks later, I'm back up to a half gallon of vodka. And when I say I drink a half gallon of vodka, I have a 30, I still have the glass. It's a 32-ounce milky white uh, tumbler. And I would put almost 30 ounces of vodka in it and a couple ounces of, uh, of pink lemonade in there. And I got to where I was drinking so much of that that it got back up to where I would shake. I would get home in the afternoon, and I would be shaking, and I would have to sit on my back porch, and I would have to down. So I would shake. I'd have to hold it with both hands and down enough vodka, enough of that drink, to sit on the edge of the patio to throw up so that I could drink. It got to that point, Mike. It got to where I was literally having to ingest vodka to calm my body down, to throw up so that I could actually drink was the point that I got to in my life. What were your kids and wife saying at this point? Well, every, everybody was done with me. They were literally done with me. Oh, my God. So that, that got to that point, and it went to the point to where I was, while I was sitting on that back porch— I was praying that tonight is the night that I don't wake up tomorrow. That's where I got to. That's how, that's how fast it went from I'll have this one beer to I'm back up to buying a half a gallon of vodka. And, I, and I'd leave, you know, it'd leave maybe an inch and a half, two inches of vodka in the bottom of that half gallon, which I'd polish off as I started the next half gallon every it, night again. It, so when they say it's progressive, it is progressive because within two weeks, I'm back up to that. I go from zero beers in six years to half a gallon of vodka in two weeks. Wow. I stayed sober two and a half years at one point and then relapsed for eight years and started drinking again. And I was quickly back up to my um, threshold of, of uh, intake of alcohol and uh, illegal street drugs quickly within um, – I'd say within a couple of weeks of, of relapsing after that two and a half year stint of sobriety. Did you ever have a moment of clarity that sent you into recovery? And if so, how did it affect you? I did. I not, not only did I do vodka, then I immediately got right back onto the volume. Mm -hmm. I, I was a big volume guy too. Mm -hmm. Lots of volume. I went, I went from, I used to, I used to sell, I used to buy and sell a lot of speed in high school, speed mm -hmm. and cocaine, Drugs, all kind, everything, everything. Literally, at one point in my life, I was, I walked through Townies Mall with a kilo of cocaine in the lower belt back of my, of my uh, shorts, because I had, I don't know what I had to have at Townies Mall, but I got out of my uh, car because I had to have something in Townies Mall, but I couldn't leave the kilo of cocaine in my car because I couldn't be trusted. Because somebody's going to break in my car to steal my cocaine. Yeah. That I had to sell that day. Wow. So I got quickly back up on the buying the volume. So I'm up in the volume. And I, when I got sober, I was 
off the volume. So I'm back onto the volume and falling asleep at some points. Yeah. Going, I'm, we're going down to see my son, uh-huh. and I'm falling asleep in the car. My wife goes, are you that tired? Well, I'm not, I'm not that tired. I, I've got four or five or six volume in me. Yeah. I can't stay awake because I'm whacked out on volume. Were you getting it from your doctor, or were you buying them on the street? No, I bought them, them on the street. Really? You yeah. just knew people? I, yeah, I know lots of people. I, I, I could probably get them right now. Oh, yeah, probably, yeah. But the moment of clarity I got was, I'm, when I got sober, I'm in the men's group with my therapist, and we're sitting around a table in a men's room. We, she, had, she had a men's group. She started out with a bunch of guys, a bunch of uh, alcoholics and bipolar guys and addicts and stuff, and it's, it's such a wonderful group. It helped save my life. This, you know, Dr. White, praise her. She's, she's been wonderful in helping me. And we're sitting around in this men's group, and we all have to take a urine test. I still take a urine test today. When I go see Dr. White four times a year, I take a urine test. For what? Just to make That's sure. That's her rules. To make if sure you're that you're go- sober. If you're going to go to see Dr. White, uh-huh. you're going to take a urine test. Okay. And so I do. And it, I have no problems with it. I'm clean, so I don't care. I, I blow in her blower. I take her urine test. I fill out her paperwork, and I see Dr. White. So... So talk to me about that moment of clarity. So we're sitting there, and we're sitting around here, and we're all filling out our paperwork, and we're talking having a men's group. And there's a guy, Mike, that's in there. He relapses all the time. There's always somebody in there relapsing. So Dr. White's sitting at the head of the table, and you know we all go in there, and we're taking our tests and stuff. And I literally just walked in there, popped two volume, set my piss cup on the edge of the toilet, take two volume, pee in the cup, go back, hand my urine test into whoever the assistant of the day is, and sitting around there, and Dr. White's reading last month's or last week's or whatever uh, drug report and says, does anybody need to tell me anything? And so I'm sitting there just kind of looking around, just, you know, who's going to be the idiot of the week? And so I literally, I'm looking at Mike, mm-hmm. waiting on Mike to say, yeah, it's me, I, you know. I went to a dispensary this week, or I had, or, or Daniel did this, or whatever. You know, waiting, waiting for one of these guys to fess up on who did what, and nobody fesses up. And so Doctor White looks at me, and she's looking me dead in the eyes, and I'm like, "Why? I, I have no idea why she's looking at me." And she goes, "Damon, do you need to tell me something?" I said, about what? About maybe some benzos? And I said, what's a benzo? She goes, a Xanax, a Valium, and you know, list off a couple of things. I said, oh, uh, yeah, I've been taking some Valium. She goes, it looks like on this report, you've been taking a lot of Valium. <laughs> like, I mean, that's in a lot of Valium. And I said, uh, well, yeah, I've got some on me right now. I just took a couple. She goes, where's your prescription? I don't have a prescription. So you've got illegal drugs on you right now in my doctor's office. Yes. What are you going to do about that? I said, I guess I need to get rid of them. She goes, 
are you going to get a new sobriety date? Maybe tell your sponsor about this. She goes, how are you? And so we started talking stuff. She goes, you need to maybe take a little inward look at yourself. That's how you're handling your sobriety. I had 86 volume in my pocket when this discussion's going on. So I went home. I stood over the toilet in the guest bath. I emptied my pocket. I put him in the toilet. The meeting's from 6 to 7, so I guess around 7.30 that night on March 14th, 2012, I flushed 86 volume. And I said, I can't do this shit anymore. I just can't do this shit anymore. I'm getting chills right now. I just can't do this shit anymore. I'm tired of fucking lying. I just can't do this. So I went to Preston on March 15th, 2012. I sat in the same room, which was the, the west side of Preston. And I... I'd had a sponsor that I didn't like, which was an original sponsor. I kind of just, he didn't make me work. You know, they said, find somebody you want and get what they want. And so I went back in there with the intent, with the intent of getting, I knew exactly who I wanted to be my sponsor. So I walked in there, I sat in the meeting. And at the end of the meeting, Scott stood up. It was like Moses on the Ten Commandments. He had that aura around him. That's that long white hair. Yeah, I'm telling you, dude. It was, he was shining. <laughs> Tall, looking good. <laughs> and yeah, in 2010, when I walked in there, Scott stood up. And I started to walk up to him. And I decided, that guy's going to make me work. And I walked right around him and took another sponsor because I wasn't ready. And I didn't want Scott to make me work. But in 2015, 2012, I was ready. And Scott told me the same thing that he tells all his guys. God is everything or God is nothing. What's your choice? And I tell you what. It hit me right between the eyes like a two before because I, was, I, I didn't have a God. Like I told you before, I didn't have a God. I hesitated. I did not know what I was going to do at that point, but I was absolutely terrified. I was terrified for my life that if I went back out, I may not make it back. Had you ever tried to work the steps up to this point? Well, I conveniently have this little piece of paper right here that has the 12 steps on it. And I looked at it because somebody had asked me to work the 12 steps before. And on number two, it says power greater than ourselves. On number three, it says God. On number five, it says God. On number six, it says God. On number seven, it says Him. On number 11, it says God. On number 12, it says spiritual awakening. And that's all I saw when I looked at the steps, was that half of them required God. If you don't have a God, how can you work the steps? So I said, there's no way I can. This, this program won't work for me. It requires God, and I don't have God. So when Scott asked me that, 
I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew that I was desperate. I knew that if it required God, that I had to do this. So I said, absolutely. I knew I was lying through my teeth. But when he said, are you willing to do anything and everything? I said, absolutely. And I knew that I would do whatever it took to make this work. Well, then y'all got to work. You and Scott got to work pretty quickly. We got to work. And that's where, not, that's where steps two and three are the most important to me because it says came to believe because I came to believe. Because like when Scott told me about this stuff and I said, Scott, I, I don't know. And Scott said, do you believe that I believe? I said, I do. I do. I absolutely believe that you believe. He said, then we'll start from there. We'll start from there. And we'll work our way to getting you a God. That's what my sponsor said to me, man. I came in with very little to no belief or hope. And uh, he asked me the same question when we got there. And I was like, yo, I don't know, dude. And he's like, do you believe that I believe? And I go, yeah, I believe you believe. You put off this aura and you have this life. And you told me about this older drunk life that you used to have when you were homeless. And they called, everybody called you, his name was Gary P. And everybody used to call my sponsor Gary P. before he got sober, the Bushman Oceanside. And the reason they called Gary P. the Bushman Oceanside because he lived in the bushes under the highway, the five, and he was homeless. And he told me about that. And other people, you know, verified that story. And then I met him with five years sober and asked him to be my sponsor. And his life was completely different than the life that he described to me. So... I could see in his eyes that uh, he was recovered from a hopeless state of mind and being. And so I just borrowed his God, man. I just borrowed Gary P's God. Can you talk for a minute to the listeners that might be coming in soon or are in the newcomer stage right now? And you and I just used the term. I asked you, I said, so did you and Scott get to work? What does that mean? Can you paint a little bit of picture for somebody that might be coming in soon or somebody that just got here? What does get to work mean? What, what, are you, what were you doing? You and Scott. We were doing, we were doing, we started, let me tell you how simple we started. We started with things like Scott said, Scott said, what do you do in the morning? I said, I get up, I roll over, I pick my phone up. I said, stop that immediately. (laughs) Stop doing that. He said, you're going to get up, you're going to roll out of bed, you're going to hit your knees and you're going to pray. I said, okay, well, let's start there. I don't know how to pray. He said, then let's, talk, let's start with that. Let's go to 84, 85, or 80, 80, 85, 86, 87, 88. Yeah, you're going to read those. You're going to read those every day. You're going to read page, page 30 in, the, in a 12 and 12 every day. Mm-hmm. He said, we're, we're going to start with reading. You're going to read some of the big book every day. I don't care what page you read. I don't care how many pages you read. You're going to read some of the big book every day. Yeah. You're going to call me, not text me mm-hmm. every day. I go to the, he goes, I go to Preston on Mondays and Fridays at noon. I expect to see you there. <laughs> That's what he told me too. <laughs> he told me, I was like, he I said, do you make your bed? Yeah. I said, huh, why would I make my bed? <laughs> I'm a man. <laughs> he goes, he goes, nobody sees my bed. He goes, you're going to make your bed mm-hmm. every day. I said, well, that makes no sense. Then he sent me a link to a, uh, a uh, military guy that has a speech on why he makes his bed. He says, no matter how bad 
or how good your day was. When you come home and your bed's made, it makes your day a little better. And it's a nice, it's a nice little three-minute speech this is, that this military guy puts on about how you start your day off with that and mm-hmm. you end your day with that. Yeah. It's, it's, about, it's about doing the next right thing. Yeah, I've seen that video. It's fantastic. Yeah, I think it's it was a, commencement, a commencement speech that he made at a um, college, and it's available on YouTube. Just to recap a couple of the things that you said uh, about what it means to come into uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12-step-based program, and quote-unquote get to work. Some of the things that you mentioned is Scott told you to call him, not text him. That's a behavioral change. Read the book. I'm sure you weren't doing that much when you were before you got here. Read the book, 86, 87, and 88. There's a lot of good information there on how to start your day and end your day. He also told you to start praying in the morning. That's a physical change instead of picking up your phone right away. He also told you to come see him at a meeting in person. Come to a meeting. These are the days I'm here. Come here so I can put my eyes on you. That's what he told me too. He also told you to make your bed in the morning. So whether these seem like they're going to make a big difference to you or not, listener, uh, they do. They will. They worked for Damon. They worked for me. Those are just some of the simple things that I started to do in early sobriety that allowed me to transition away from my old drunk life to a new sober life. There's a couple other behavioral changes that Robbie told me and Alonzo told me. I was very angry when I came in. And Robbie walked up to me, I think after probably meeting three or four, and he said, dude, you are so angry. He said, you know, you watch the basket go around the room like you're not doing it right, dude. Pass the basket. You're doing it the wrong order. He goes, have you ever heard the phrase, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? He goes, you always want to be right, don't you? And I said, yeah. He goes, try being happy. So I, I grabbed a hold of that my first year. And I guarantee you, I said, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? At least 10,000 times my first year. <laughs> That's, what did Alonzo tell you? Alonzo told me, because I'd moved from one side of the room to the other side of the room. He said, I noticed that you show up at 11.59 and you leave at 1.01. He said, and he grabbed me after the meeting when I'm literally walking out and he grabbed me and held me by both forearms in the middle of the, of the room with the fifth step room. He said, hey, you need to sit all the way down, all the way down in that chair and don't miss the miracle. You're not hearing the similarities. You're hearing the differences. Be one of us and save your own life. Wow, that's amazing. I love that guy. I want to talk real quick about the last paragraph on page 43 of the big book, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Our, it's our text. The, the program is contained in the first 164 pages. And my favorite page and my favorite paragraph is the last paragraph on page 43. It says this, Once more, the alcoholic at certain time has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. And that takes me right back 
to the end of that second year, second stanza of six years of sobriety that you had where you the light was shining on the beer and you rolled up to it and you picked it up and it says uh, no other human being can provide such a defense, even though one actually tried in your real life scenario story it played out. A real human being came up and put their hand on your forearm and was like, bro, take it easy. Should you be doing this? Yeah, it's my life, whatever. So somebody actually did try to physically intervene for you and with you, but even they couldn't do it. And so it talks about that his defense must come from a higher power. I just wanted to read that out loud because I was really thinking about that paragraph when you were telling that story. And I wanted to touch on something that uh, Gary P., my sponsor, helped me with in Oceanside, California, when I got in. He talked to me about reading the big book, and he said, the first day I met him, he goes, I want you to go home and read more about alcoholism and there as a solution. Because when I went home and read them that night, it changed my life and it gave me a lot of information about what alcoholism was, but it also gave me a lot of information about what the solution was, which gave me a lot of hope, which allowed me to roll back into the meeting on my second day of sobriety and go to the meeting and then meet him at the meeting after the meeting where we went to a place called Coco's, which was kind of like an IHOP or a Denny's. They have a lot of Coco's in California and that's where we ended up meeting that night at 6.30 and started to roll through the literature and he told me a little bit about himself and what he used to be like. He told that's when he told me about the Bushman Oceanside story. And uh, I could see him radiating recovery, love and happiness. And that's something that I wanted. He had something that I wanted. And that's something that all my sponsors have shared in common. That's how I find uh, my sponsors. I've been sober a long time. So I've transitioned through a few of them for several different reasons. I've moved around. Some of them passed away. Some of them relapsed. Some of them died. Long story short, I'm always listening to what people say, but also watching how they conduct themselves outside of the meeting. And that's how I got Scott D as my sponsor. And he has been really uh, fantastic for me. And I think what, you know, I think that I just want to say what I have learned from him in the last couple of years, more than anything is the thing that he always says. I mean, it's, God's either everything or he's nothing. What's your choice to be? Cause if he's everything, you're good. You're cool. If he's nothing, you got a lot to worry about, bro. You got a lot of problems in your life and you better get, get it figured out and figure out a way to get that spiritual experience. What I've talked about before is a profound personality change. And that's, that's what you get when you work the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. When you first arrived at these AA meetings, um, what did you think about them? I, I know you were horrified by the word God, I guess. Were you still mad when you saw the word God on the wall? I was never mad. I was just concerned that, you know, this is not going to work for me because I don't know how I'm going to work these steps with God. Like I said, I tried to work the ones without God, and, of course, that failed miserably. You know, like I said, I, I, I went a year. We're down at the beach. I'm staying on the cruise ship. Because I don't want to go down and drink the dollar beers on the beach. And then I walked down to, uh, I went shopping. I'm down there staying sober with AA. I got this. I'm fine. Walking through there, they keep saying, free shot, free shot, free shot. Walking around. And my knees hurt because I've got a meniscus tear and I'm going to go have surgery. This is in January. I'm going to have surgery when we get back from the cruise. And so I said, I'm going to go get me three hydrocodones. And where were you, Mexico? We're in Mexico. And you can get those without a prescription, I'm walking right? into the pharmacy. I'm oh going to get three. I oh have three God. days left. I'm Had you told anybody about this plan yet or just no, a secret they're all, plan? they're all down at the beach. I think you have a lot of secret plans you don't tell people about. Well, this I'm down there. <laughs> just I'm just, up with shit. I'm just on the beach. I mean, I'm just on the... I, I'm not going to leave the yeah. ship. I'm staying on the ship. Yeah. Y'all are good. I'm not going to leave the ship. Okay. Then all of a sudden I said, I'm going to go shopping. Uh-huh. And when I'm shopping, my knee starts hurting. Yeah. And when my knee's hurting, there's a pharmacia. So I start walking in the pharmacia. 
I'm going to get three. There's three days left. I'm going to be three hydrocodones. Mm-hmm. I walk in there. I buy the three hydrocodones. As I'm walking out the pharmacy, boom, it strikes me. I'm literally stepping on the threshold out of there. I turn around and said, do y'all sell Valium? Oh, no. See, I'll take 200. Did you really say that? That's the words out of my mouth. You're an alcoholic and a drug addict. I'll take 200. How embarrassing. Did you really do that? I bought 200. (laughs) I walked back in there. You're terrible. And with one year sobriety? With one year sobriety. That's how, how on my birthday, January 25th, I bought 200. Okay. That's how my my sobriety date's March. Because on March 14th, Mm -hmm. just that... I had taken 114 from January. Uh-huh. I, I consumed 114 volumes from mm-hmm. January 25th mm-hmm. to March 14th. Wow, that's how you had 86 left. That's how I had 86 left. How did you get, I wanted to go back about 20, 30 minutes. How did you get in that group with that doctor? We say Dr. White, did you say? <coughs> how did you get in that men's group? What were you doing in there? Okay. What was that? So that's how, that's how, this is how I get to there. Yeah, how'd you get there? My dad calls again uh-huh. and says, we need to talk about your drinking. Oh, God. On June 10th, 2010. Yeah. Shit's getting real again. I better stop drinking. Yeah. So I stopped drinking. 30 days later, I'm like, okay, I've stopped drinking for 30 days. Heat's off. Everything's good. Now, my brother, we're in Carpet One, which is a big national organization. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of commercial stuff. My brother says, hey, I need you to meet me. I've got Steve Pigman, the big wig up at Carpet One, is going to meet us about this uh, commercial insurance deal. Mm-hmm. We don't do commercial insurance. Mm-hmm. Insurance. The, he he's in the insurance business part, and I don't do the retail insurance. I do commercial. But now they're all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this commercial insurance. I'm doing the air quotes right now. The commercial insurance deal is going to become real. Uh-huh. Well, it's not. It's a scam to get me into an intervention. Oh my God! So my brother oh, sets no. up this this commercial insurance okay set up yeah. at the and Richardson at a hotel in a in in a on June July July tenth July eleventh somewhere in there. You're the first. I want to interrupt you for two seconds. You're the first person on this podcast to describe an intervention from the point of view of a alcoholic at drug addict. So. Please paint a very good picture here okay. about what that was like. So on that day, I'm supposed to meet at noon. Okay. Now, I've been sober for 30 days at this point. Okay. I My plan was I got up early. I went to uh, the container store. I bought a sliding drawer that I'm going to install. Mm-hmm. On, on This is on a, it's on a Friday or Saturday. I'm, I think it was on Saturday. This is on a Saturday. Let's just say it was Saturday. I was going to, I was going to install it on, on that. This is on Friday. No, this is on a Saturday. I'm going to install it on Sunday morning. But my plan was I already had a massage set up for 6 o'clock. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go to the meeting. I'm going to go to massage. Then I'm going to go buy a half a gallon of vodka and start drinking because it's been 30 days. I got the heat off. Wow. That is my plan for the day. Yeah. Already booked out, solid, had the massage, had the, uh, had my, I had already had my day routed out. Yeah. So I pull in there and I'm about five minutes late. My brother is in the parking lot waving his arms, freaking out. Yeah. So I walk in there and 
You think you're walking into a I walk into meeting. the Renaissance in Richardson, pull him there, walk in. I walk in the room, and there's my wife, oh my son, my, my daughter, my CFO, my mom, my dad, my my uh, baseball assistant, my baseball head coach. God, there's there's like eleven people in there. There was an intervention guy there too, a specialist. Intervention guy, intervention specialist. From, did, from when did you know what was going on? Well, I walk in there. And first thing I did was get pissed. Okay. First thing I did, heat comes over my body. Yeah, I get pissed. The door closes behind me, and of course, immediately you get the fight or flight hit you. Am I gonna am I gonna turn and run out of here? What am I going to do? I'm cornered. And that's when God stepped in. This was my first God moment in a long time. Because peace and calm immediately came over me. At that point, I just pulled the chair out at the head of the table and sat down. Now you got to go through everybody reading a letter. Everybody says, I want to tell you this. I just want to go to, let's go to the treatment center. At this point here, I have given in. I have surrendered. This was my first point of surrender. I'm ready to go. Did you let everybody read all their letters? I, and I did. I sat there. Did you cry? I didn't get the sad face. No. The blah. Okay. I, I didn't get the negative. Let's just get the shit over with. Uh-huh. I let everybody read their letters. Did some of them cry while they were reading their letters? Most of them did. Oh, my God. My brother like had a, two letters. Oh I didn't know he had two letters. <laughs> but my brother, because he's my business partner, too, uh-huh. had the, if you go to the treatment center, here's your letter. If you don't, here's the, you're out of the business. Oh, Jesus. Letter. Uh-oh. He told you that? I don't know what was in that letter, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it was in the letter. Yeah. You're fired. My wife. Uh-huh. Uh-oh. Pretty much had the two letters too. Oh no! And so, what did she? Was she holding two letters and she said, "Which one do you need to read?" Or neither she, one had the two had the second letter with them. Uh huh. But they told you they had another one. How'd you know? My wife has already said, uh-huh. "If you didn't go, I was done." Oh no! My brother has already said, "God, I have destroyed the second letter." Okay. But that's where I, that that's where I was at, and so the guy in the intervention. Yeah, this is how angry I was. At, I, I went from. I'll accept it to the, I didn't, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with the intervention guy. I was going to ask you, did you know who that dude was or was he some stranger to you? He's just, just a dude. Somebody they hired. Somebody they hired. An employee, yeah. Who probably did a professional job yeah. and was great he did. and helped save my life. Yeah, it worked. Yeah. But I was such a dickhead to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he got in the car and he started talking. I said, I yeah. have no words to say to you, dude. Okay. It's an hour and 15 minute drive. Just shut the F up and drive. Who all was in the car? You, him, and Me and him. Oh. Me and him. Me and him. told him, be quiet for an hour and 15, dog. We're going to Van Alstein. Okay. I don't know you. Yeah. I don't want to know you. I don't care about you. Yeah. You're not my family. Yeah. I got nothing to do with you. Do you want to give a shout out to the name of the treatment center or not? It's InterHealth. Okay. InterHealth and Van Alstein. Yeah. They did a fantastic job. Okay. The most important thing I got out of there was a big book. And directions to AA. Okay. I can't tell you. I have nothing bad to say about treatment centers. Mm -hmm. They did treat, they did give me steps one, two, and three. Mm -hmm. I was not ready for AA. 
when I got there, mm-hmm. but they brought AA meetings. Mm-hmm. I met a guy up there named Alan. Mm-hmm. I wished I'd have paid more attention, but the one thing he told me that stuck, the one thing I truly got out of Inner Health was the AA meetings, was Alan told me, if you don't get an aftercare program out of this, if you don't find AA, you've thrown $45,000 in the garbage because AA will save your life. This is a start. That is a life-saving program. That That stuck in my heart and that stuck in my head. 45 days up there, that's what I got. If you don't get AA, you've wasted $45,000. Yeah. So when I walked down the halls, the first day, when I, I, 18, I was introduced to AA. My dad's business partner, my dad's business partner, I had to walk past him for 30 years. Joe Steen was a member of the Preston Group. I would not accept AA. And then when I walked down the halls of Preston, when I turned in there, I was turning around. And Bobby, Bobby Kay stood up and looked me dead in the eyes. And then I walked over there, and they treated me like I'd been there for 30 years. They treated me like the most important guy in the room. They told me I don't ever have to feel like this again. They asked me to lunch. They asked for my phone number. They called me. Told you to come back. They told me to come back. Yeah. They told me they love me. Glad you're here. They told me they love me. <laughs> they I mean, yeah. You. I've, That's went, I've gone to high school. I've gone to college. I've worked with people. Mm-hmm. I've gone to church with people. Not many times, but nobody told me they love me and want to see me back. These people do. Yeah. I remember I heard that in early sobriety from strangers. These people in Oceanside, California, 1919 Apple Street in the Moose Lodge. I didn't know who they were. And they told me, uh, yo, we're glad you're here. Yo, we hope you come back tomorrow. And I'm sitting there in my mind thinking, you don't know me, bro. I'm not that good a dude. Like, I drink a lot and I do a lot of drugs and do a lot of other stuff that is not uh, that legitimate. So uh, I don't know what you're doing. But in hindsight, I look back. And I realized they were doing the same thing to me that was done for them when they got there. And I'll just try to define it in a real wide scope of words by saying that they were loving me before I could love myself. And they knew that, you know, the reason I was a bad dude or had transitioned into a lost soul or whatever is because I was suffering from a disease that uh, put me in a position where I was helpless on whether I was going to be drinking or doing drugs that day. It just just transitioned into their active alcoholism. It ground me down and it beat me up. And it got me to a state of being teachable and reasonable and to a position where I was open-minded enough to consider that there might be a power greater than myself with which I could solve all my problems. And that's what I want to ask you next. As you say, you came into the program and you started working with Scott and you didn't have a God and you didn't believe in the God. And there was six of the 12 steps had the word God, him or spiritual experience in it. And then you started working with Scott, and he said you could borrow his guy. Can you talk to me a little bit about the transition? How did you get from the transition of being a non-believer to having some hope or being comfortable enough with the steps and those words and the terminology of God and higher power, he or him, to move forward with the program? Can you talk to me a little bit about what you did and what that transition was like in early sobriety? Well, like I said, (coughs) Scott had enough God to share his with me. 
to where, you know, when I started, I Googled praying, how to pray, and there's nothing there. So I literally had to call, call Scott on how to pray and stuff. And then he said, well, here's what I do. Yeah. And we started from there. And then now. He had to be taught how to pray in a Salvation Army. Yeah. When he was homeless. And that helped me a lot. It's he, he said, I had to ask. He had no idea. And I had no idea. The blind leading the blind. The blind leading the blind, <laughs> exactly. And now, you know, I wake up every day. I roll out of bed, I hit my knees, or I, you know, sometimes I, I go to the back room and hit my knees. It depends on, you know, because I, I get up at 3 or 3.30 every day. Golly. So what time do you go to bed? 8, 8.30. Okay, good. Thank God. Yeah, so, <laughs> I you hope know, you weren't going to say midnight. I'm like, how do you So, do you know, my wife's still asleep when I get up. So I'll, mm-hmm. I'll roll to the back room mm-hmm. and leave her alone. Me and my wife and my daughter leave at different times, so I got to make sure I'm very quiet and respectful of their time and stuff too. So, but when I do, I go back there and do a lot of my praying and meditating in the back room. Have you worked with Scott the whole time? Is he still your sponsor? Right? No, he's not. He's not. Okay. He's not. Tell, tell me about. Um, are you? Do you have a sponsor now? What are you doing yeah, now? Gary's my sponsor. Gary C. Okay. Um, what's the most important thing Scott taught you? And then maybe what's the most important thing your new sponsor has taught you? The most important thing Scott taught me was mm-hmm. God and honesty. Because when, when I came into uh, AA, and I, I just wrote that down in, in right here, honesty. Mm-hmm. When I came in, I could not tell the truth. I did not know the truth was. I did not know how bad I lied. And I literally, if you, to, if, if you caught a fish, I caught three. <laughs> if you hit a home run, I hit seven. Uh-huh. I fabricated, over-embellished everything. Mm-hmm. And I I couldn't stop it. Shit would come out of my mouth. I did. Where did that come from? Autopilot. Autopilot, dude. Autopilot. <laughs> I mean, autopilot. And I'm you know we're going to lunch down down to Fish House, and I don't know if you ever knew Peter. He was an attorney. He he's moved away, mm-hmm. and we're down there, and we're down to Fish House, and we're eating, and. Me and Peter are talking, and all of a sudden it comes, you know, talking about my son. All of a sudden, he's throwing a 170 mile an hour fastball, and he struck out 63 guys in one inning. And I'm, and after it, and I get in the car and I call Scott and said, Scott, I just told the most incredible lies, and I couldn't stop myself to Peter. What do I do? He said, It's real simple. You called Peter and said, Peter, none of what I told you was true. Every bit of it was a lie. And I'm trying to work on honesty. And I need to be honest. And today I start. And I called Peter. Yeah. And I said, Peter, this is Damon. We just had lunch. I didn't throw 173 mile an hour and fast. I, and I don't know what I told him. I can't remember what I was You were on a roll, bro. But I called Peter up and I said, Peter, this is Damon. And we just had lunch. And... The story I just told you is not true. And I'm trying to be honest, and I need to start with this story. And I have real trouble telling the truth. I need to be honest with you and start now telling you the truth. The truth of the story is da 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 And I went, and that's the first time I was ever honest in my life. And I made that phone call, and it was very humbling, and it was very hard. But since then, I stopped. And that was 
the hardest thing I've ever done in my life was make that phone call and tell Peter, I'm a liar. I can't control myself. This stops. It stops now. And he said, I get it. I understand. You're forgiven. You mentioned you had two sponsors. The first one was Scott. Who was the second one? Gary C. Gary, was there a break? Was there a time break between those two, between Scott and Gary C? Like, did you did you sponsor yourself for any period of time, or, or did you move quickly from Scott to Gary? Quickly. Okay, so what but is But I the, have sponsored myself. Okay, well, I'll ask you that after you. I'm going to ask you two questions. One, what, what have you learned from Gary C., and then I'll ask you another question about Humility. That. Humility, okay. And so talk about sponsoring yourself. And did you do that for an extended period of time? And how did that work out for you? Not an ex- extended period of time, but, you know, even while Scott was sponsoring me, I was sponsoring myself without calling Scott for <laughs> periods of time. And, okay. And a lot of, uh, like I've heard you say, a lot of green lighted, green lit stuff. <laughs> you know, that sounds good. Yeah, you can do that. Go ahead. Yeah. It's, it, it's it's never worked out well. You know, yeah. Then you have to pick up the thousand pound phone and call your sponsor and say, "Here's what I've been doing." And you say, "Well, think you should have called somebody on that." Uh, yeah, a lot of times the stuff that we tell ourselves in our own mind is so crazy. But then when we say it out loud to another person, they hit us with that look, that dumb dumb. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, "You're gonna tell her what, bro? You're gonna tell her what? Don't do it, bro. Do this instead." Um, so are you sponsoring guys? Where are you at on sponsorship and being of service to newcomers? I've got two sponsors, uh, two sponsees right now. They, I say I've got two. <laughs> well, you do. I don't know if they call you or not. Yeah, they, they, they come and they go. They're yeah. in and they're out. They're mm-hmm. yin and they yang. Yeah, yeah. What have you learned from sponsoring guys? Like, what, what, what would you say one or, your one or two takeaways from, from being a sponsor has been? You have no control. The best thing I learned, and, and Scott and Gary both repeat the same thing, is you are doing the best thing for you. Help them helps you. You can't keep them sober, but you can dang sure keep yourself sober. There's another podcast that I listen to. I want to give a shout out to my friend John M. And the name of his podcast is called Sober Speak. And there's a guy on there. I don't really know that much about him or his story, but he always talks about help one save two. And the first time I heard him say that, help one, save two. He's talking about from a sponsorship role, try to help somebody else, which is you trying to help one, but you save two because you save yourself as well as them. So special shout out to, and I don't know that gentleman's name. I just know his tagline. So special shout out to John M. and Sober Speak. If you like this podcast, I think you should check that one out too. I think you would dig it. Has the desire to drink or use drugs again uh, returned since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? Yeah, there was a period, I guess, around years four through six that were a real struggle for me. I kept, for some reason, I kept having a recurring dream that I was going to build and own a vodka distillery. I would dream it and then I'd wake up uh-huh. and it's all I would think about. Really? Like you were going to really try to do that, you think? It, it, it's right whenever Tito's was having all these, <laughs> these Tito's distillery commercials. Yeah. And I kept... Because, you know, I was a big vodka drinker. Yeah, you were. And I just kept dreaming. Uh-huh. And I would have to call Dr. White. I'd call Scott. I just, I can't stop dreaming about building this vodka distillery. I've only had one really, really bad drinking dream that I woke up. And I mean, I was in, I was sweating. And I really thought I was drinking. The recurring wanting to drink, I just, 
every now and then I'll walk through a Kroger or something. Now, I mean, like once a year or something, I'll like, what am I doing on the wine aisle? How did I get here? But other than that, I mean, nothing. Yeah, I, don't. I want to talk about that for a second. I agree with that 100%. I've been sober a long time, and every once in a while, I'll accidentally take, make a wrong turn in a grocery store I'm not familiar with, or I'll be think, I'll, I'll be in a grocery store that I am familiar with, but I'll be thinking about something else, and I'll turn down the, the beer and wine aisle, and, I'll, and there's nothing but f- for 80 feet except all beer on the right and coolers and all wine on the left and on the shelves, and I'm just like... Dude, how did I get on this? I've been so long time in a good spiritual spot, so it doesn't really bother me. But there have been times in early sobriety where I, on purpose, did not go down those aisles. There's no, I have no business on that aisle. I'm a sober individual in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I got one year sober, two years sober, four years sober. I, I don't go down. I don't look at the labels. I don't look at the new packaging and marketing material. I don't go down and judge, like, do they have LED lights here at this store in these cases? I mean... How clean is the floor in the refrigerator? I don't care, dude. I don't even go down that area. It's just, I don't have no business there. Have you experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober, and how have you coped with it? I have depression. Uh, depression. Mm-hmm. I am uh, mild bipolar. Do you take in medicine? The last six, I do. Yeah, okay. I do. Six, eight months ago, I got in a real bad low spot. I get manic, and then I get depressed. And you know, I've been real blessed. I've been more manic than anything. I get real up and stay i stay up most of the time yeah but here probably six to nine months ago i got so depressed so depressed that i i could mike i was going to bed at six o'clock just get this you know i was treating it just like we do alcohol you know just hey you know 24 hours at a time let's get this day over with let's go to the next but i was going to bed at six o'clock my wife and daughter were like what is going on with you and i really i didn't treat it correctly what does that mean? I didn't really call my doctor. I didn't call Gary. I just, like a jackass, that I got this and waited probably three or four weeks. I, I had an appointment with Dr. White coming up, so I waited the three weeks until I saw Dr. White, and I got my ass chewed out by Dr. White. Is she your primary care physician, or is she a psychologist? No, she's, she's a psychologist. Okay. And she gives me meds. She goes, and you didn't call me because and your answer you didn't was? text me because. And what'd you say? I didn't have an answer. Okay. She said, you could have texted me or called me and said, you know, I could have upped your medicine a little bit for this short period. Okay. That's what we do with bipolar. I did not know that. Did you know that? No, I, I do now. Okay. I didn't know that. Well, I did. So she'd hit you up a couple yeah, milligrams goes, yeah. to get you through and then bop you. For the decade I've been with her, yeah. we've had nothing. Yeah. She goes, but you've been in meetings, you understand. She goes, I want you to fully understand now. Yeah. This never happens again. You've had suicide concerns before. Mm-hmm. We don't want you to go away forever. Mm-hmm. Never not treat yourself. Mm-hmm. I like the way she talks to you. Yeah. Oh, she's she's fantastic, man. She's absolutely fantastic. Can you select and talk about any one of the 12 steps that you would like to highlight or discuss? There's a list of them there in front of you. I know you brought some notes. So just pick any one of the 12 steps that you want to get down on and just talk about it or read about it or whatever you want to do. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Which, which number was that? Number three. Okay. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God as we understood him. You know, if you don't have a God, you can't turn your life over to him. So when I came in here, you know, two and three are wrapped up together to me on, on these. I mean, you know, came to believe, I came to believe there was a God, and now I've completely turned my life over to God. 
I mean, because I completely turn my life over to God. Everything, everything. I wake up in the morning. I pray. First, first thing I do, the first words out of my mouth every morning, thank you, God, when I wake up. Thank you, God. I thank him for everything I do. I pray, to, just like you do, I pray, keep any substance at all out of my body today and forever that going to alter my thinking and our physical being of changing my, uh, my outlook on life. Keep my family safe. Keep my friends safe. Keep everybody I know safe and healthy. And, you know, just start the day off with prayer. But the first words out of my mouth are, thank you, God, when I wake up for another day. That's a long journey that you've taken from non-believer to really strong in faith. That's a long way for the pendulum to swing from non-believer to a believer. So how many years do you think it took you to get there? Probably six years. Were your kids and wife uh, with you on this spiritual journey? Are they beside you, behind you, in front of you? Do you all pray together? Where, where are you guys at as a team? Uh, me and my wife will pray together every now and then. She's not as spiritual. I mean, my, which is kind of odd because my most of my in-laws are hardcore Catholics. Mm -hmm. My wife's not really. Okay. My son's an atheist. Okay. And my daughter's agnostic. Okay. Super interesting. Yeah, it's oh, it's that's a that's an interesting crew of four. And my brother is a, a Bible thumper. And he's also one of us. He's also one of us. I'd he's, like to go out to eat with you guys and uh, hear everybody talk. It's a it's, lot of points of view. It's, it's very interesting to get us all in a room. Let's talk about the 11th step for a minute and kind of zero in on the meditation form. Do you meditate? What styles and forms do you use? GP turned me on to the uh, Calm app. The what? The Calm app. Okay. Yeah. Calm. C A L M. Calm. Yeah. App guided talk. meditation. I know nothing about it. Tell me about that. It's a nice little app. It's huh. guided meditation. You know, you can do three minute, six minute, nine minute. You work your way up. C A L M. Okay. And it's a guided meditation. It's yeah. Guided meditation. Yeah. I started that about two years ago. Okay. Other than that, I, I, I never wanted to meditate. Uh -huh. The GP turned me on to it. And so I started using that. And I'm getting more and more into it. So over the past two years, I started, I do about somewhere between five and, I do the five and six minute. And what, what is it, like a male voice or a female it's voice? A male Does voice. it change? It's a male voice. I it's use the male, male voice, just kind of calm and walks you right through it. Uh -huh. I sit back in my back room. Is it a pay app or free? It, well, it's a pay app. Okay. There's so many apps out there that are like that. So I want to encourage your listeners to, to get on Google Play or Apple App Store, whatever, wherever you find your apps and, and start digging through. There's a lot of free apps out there's there. There's a lot of free apps. There's a lot of free apps out there. Breathing meditations, uh, guided meditations, visuals, audios. YouTube is a great source for that. There's all kinds of ways that you can go deeper. And our literature in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about that we need to really be respectful of the great religions of time because they are a treasure trove of information. People have been meditating and praying for thousands and thousands of years. So we would be uh, ignorant to ignore that. So don't be ignorant. Do not ignore that. Explore, search, find, go to a Buddhist church if you want to meditate, uh, go to a Christian church, go, you know, Allah, whatever, whatever you're into, just, just lean more into that. We really appreciate it. And you want to uh, I want to give a special shout out to GP. Um, he was our third episode on Sober Shares, and I highly encourage 
people to go back and listen to prior episodes of the podcast. So please go back to episode number three and check out GP. That would be awesome. Another thing I want to say before we uh, go on to the next question, which is going to be, do you have any AA heroes or mentors? And if so, why are they important to you? I want to give a special um, talk to the listener real quick about um, all of our pest episodes, episodes, you know, one through 20 before the listenership really exploded. There's some real gold laying back there for you guys to explore and enjoy in episodes one through 20. And I know that most of these uh, podcast apps that you're finding us on, as well as our website, start at the top. They show our most recent episode first. For example, Megan C is right now sitting at 25. She's getting a lot of action. Uh, John M is over 700 plays. Long story short, don't be scared to, and I encourage you to roll back to some of the earlier episodes. There's a lot of gold um, in episodes one through 20, and I can see by the um, listener download counts on some of those episodes that there um, have only been listened to a few hundred times, and I'd like to see those numbers come up um, for your benefit. So I just wanted to shout that out and let you know you can't go back and listen to old episodes. So let's slide back into that question. Do you have any AA heroes or mentors, and if so, why are they important to you? Uh, you know, I do. Scott is one. Gary's one. Those are, you know, both my sponsors are my heroes. As well as I came in with a group of guys that are, that are my heroes. It's, that's GP, Jordan C, and Tad. Okay, two of the three have been on here. Well, they, we all came in together. I got to get Jordan on here too. About the same time, we all came in together. Yep, Tad, let me tell you what episode Tad, Tad was episode number seven. So yeah. two of your three heroes have been on here, and I'll get Jordan on here too. And yeah, you know, we all fought the family, losing the family, growing the family. Yeah, his sobriety date is right around yours. He came in a little bit before you. About a, he had about a year when you came in. Uh, I'm the, talking about GP. GP, yeah. yeah. GP came in. We all came in around 2010. Okay. Tad came in much before. Yeah. They came back out. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we've all fought to lose it, but just about to lose the family or lost the family. Yeah. And then True. we've all got, you know, GP's got a little over 10 years. I've got 10 years. Tad's got 11 years. Jordan's coming up on 10 years. So we've all came in right around the same time. That's and have, cool. And have kept around the same sobriety. Yeah. That's a good little crew there. Yeah. That's a strong little crew. Of we, all, I'll see, we all see each other at the same meeting all the same time. And you know. I did not know that. That's why I love doing these podcasts. I know you and I know all those three other dudes, but I didn't know that you guys were a little crew because I wasn't around there when you were doing that. I haven't only, I've only come to the Preston group within the last probably three years. Before, before that, it was Aquarius. Aquarius, Aquarius, Aquarius. That was my home group. We're closed right now uh, due to some issues with uh, the facilities and building maintenance issues. I've transitioned to the uh, Preston Group about three years ago, and that's 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 where I'm at now. What has been your toughest challenge in sobriety, and how have the 12 steps helped you with that challenge? Probably been the pandemic. Okay. Because? Watching my friends fight. Watching my friends fight. I used to be such an angry person. I mean, so angry. And now love and tolerance is our code. We have cease fighting anything and everyone. And then to sit there in the meeting rooms and on the, the group conscience and stuff and seeing all of my friends literally fighting over whether we're going to turn the coffee machine on or off, whether or not we're going to open the place back and forth. I mean, seeing literally my one friend on one side and one friend on the other side fighting hurt my heart that hurt my heart how have the 12 steps help you with that challenge call your sponsor 
hug yeah. another man, yeah. try to step inside and say, hey, guys, we're all on the same team. We're all on the same team. That was a beautiful answer. I did not expect you to say the pandemic was, was the toughest challenge of your sobriety, but that's a beautiful answer. Why is going to meetings important? It keeps my soul fresh. I get to see people like you. I get to see all of my other friends. I get to see GP. I get to see Jordan. I get to see Tad. I get to see both the Andes. I get to yeah, see both I, of them. Know, Monday and Fridays are yeah. awesome to me. I mean, I go to I go to the Saturday Lake Highlands men's meeting. Those refresh my soul. You never, just like Alonzo told me, sit down. Don't miss the miracle. You never know what's going to come out of somebody's mouth. And it doesn't matter if they got one day. It don't matter if they got 30 days. It don't matter if they got 30 years. It's always a miracle coming out of somebody's mouth. That's beautiful. It reminds me of um, a friend of mine who's passed away named Brooks Bell. And Brooks Bell had a very, very long time sober. And he went to the Clean Air North group in Addison. And I love him. And he would say, um, come all the way in, Michael, and take a deep seat in Alcoholics Anonymous. Come all the way in and take a deep seat and listen to what we have to say. And don't leave before the miracle. And that made sense to me because he seemed like he wasn't trying to sell me anything. <coughs> he wasn't trying to convince me of anything. And he wasn't trying to make me do anything. And I've never heard anybody tell me to, to take a deep seat somewhere. That means sit all the way down and listen to what we have to say. And I trusted that guy and I miss him so much. Do you agree with the thought and the concept? And a lot of people say this, that Alcoholics Anonymous is not the only way to get sober. There are other ways to get sober. Do you agree with that? Or, and I'm not talking about just for you. I'm just talking about the world in general. What are your thoughts on that? No, I've got, I've got a couple of friends that don't go to AA that have got sober, that have never seen an AA meeting and will probably never see an AA meeting that have just used church. I got. I stayed sober for six years without church. I mean, without AA. I mean, you know, you can do it without AA. Just, I prefer this way. Yeah, me too. This is an easier, softer way for me, and I'm kind of like totally into the easier, softer way. If I can diagnose it and take that path, I will do that. I don't think, for me personally, that I could stay sober without Alcoholics Anonymous because it would eventually come a place. Exactly like I was reading earlier, last paragraph on page forty-three, that at some point, somewhere, some I would have a, I would have no effective mental defense against the first drink. I would, quote unquote, air quotes, change my mind and decide that it would be okay for me to drink again. I don't want to do that again. In front of you, you've got a list of the promises. Can you give us uh, read us one of the promises and give us an example of that coming true in your life? The promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of useless and self, uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in, in selfish things and gain interest in other fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize God is doing for us which we cannot do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work them. 
that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. I used to feel, you know, like I told you, I grew up getting picked on, bullied, left aside. I don't feel useless. I don't have self-pity anymore. I feel like I'm a part of. I feel like I can help. I feel like I'm needed. I never felt like that growing up. I walk in and people wave at me. They come up and they hug me and they say hi. I do not feel useless. I do not wake up with self-pity anymore. And that is huge to me. Can you explain to me what it feels like to be forgiven by your higher power for your past? You know, Scott told me that. Whenever we did our fifth step. Oh, yeah, at the end of it. it. Yeah. He said, you're forgiven. And I didn't know what that meant until I was actually, you know, you go back and you review. Uh Uh-huh. You take time and you review and then you move on. Mm -hmm. Are you talking about the hour that you go home and spend? Yeah. Tell me about that hour. And I'm sitting there. I'm in my back room and I'm chilling and I don't have the TV on (laughs) and I got my phone off. Right. And I'm just calmly sitting there for the first time in probably a decade or so. And my body's relaxing. And all the anger is just leaving me. And that word comes back again. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. And I know it's not Scott saying it. But I keep hearing you're forgiven. I've never heard that before. You're, you're forgiven. And I felt free. I don't know. I've done some shitty things in my life. But you're forgiven. It's the most freeing thing that I've ever heard. Wow. Yeah, when I think about it, if you, from my experience, that that hour, the literature, our big book, the literature in the big book tells us to go home after we do our fifth step with our sponsor and find a place to be quiet for an hour and review the first five steps and think about, you know, the work that we've done so far because that's the, we're building a triumphant arch through which we're going to walk a free man and they want us to really review the first five proposals and steps and see if we have done them to our fullest and have we left anything out and to think about it in hindsight and even you had an epiphany, it sounds like for sure while you were doing that hour's worth of meditation and review, that is one of the most important hours if you do it right, that can be one of the most important hours of your life, of your entire life here on this planet, because you're making the transition of kind of letting go of your old life and, and embracing a new life. And I remember I went home and I did that, that hour's worth of meditation and I cried during my fifth step, man. I let a lot of, a lot of stuff go during that fifth step. And I, I got clean, you know, I got clean with another man and, and God and myself. And I was just honest with people. I was like, yo bro, I'm flawed, dude. I'm flawed in a lot of ways. I got a lot of issues I probably need to look at and work on in my sex conduct. I got a lot of issues and things I need to work on in my fears. And I got a lot of issues and things I need to work on on my resentments. And as I told him those things and highlighted that and shined the spotlight of truth on all that, I got free of a lot of it. And I went home and I did that hour's worth of meditation. And I thought to myself two things. One, I'm obviously serious about staying sober. Why else would I have done that? Why else would I have gone to that guy and cried and told him all that stuff and let all that stuff go? And second of all, why would I be here by myself doing what he told me to do to find a place to be quiet for an hour here? There's nobody here watching me. I could not be doing this. I could be like taking a shower. I could be watching TV. But apparently I'm serious about this sobriety thing because I'm sitting here doing this and the idea that I had been forgiven and kind of reborn, not in a Jesus churchy, bible type of way, but reborn in a spirit way 
like I had been cleaned off and forgiven for all of the stuff that I had done came to me strongly, just like it did to you. And I went to sleep that night and I woke up the next day, a new guy, you know, I just woke up a new guy. So that was a beautiful thing for me. And that's just a vignette and a quick little glimpse of, of a time that I felt forgiven by my higher power. I've had deeper uh, experiences and epiphanies as the, as the years and months and decades have rolled by. I've, I've found other ways through prayer and meditation specifically to get, to get deeper. Do you have a favorite passage or part of the big book that you can share with us? Page 417, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems. When I am disturbed, it is because I find some person, place, thing, or situation, some fact of my life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept this person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. Until I accept my alcoholism, I could not stay sober unless I accept this life completely on life's terms. I could not be happy. I could not concentrate not so much on what needs to be changed in the world, on what needs to be changed in me and in my attitudes. And you know, when you go back to this, it says nothing in God's world is made by mistake. I highlighted and circled by mistake. Nothing by mistake. That includes me and you, right? That includes me and you. And all the situations that come down the pike, even though we can't understand them fully all the time. I was in a meeting the other day, and I was really frustrated. I don't know what had my hair on fire. And a guy walked up to me after the meeting. He puts his hand over my heart, and he says, Remember, God thought enough to make the mountains and the skies and the seas and he still took time to meet you. And I said, thank you, sir. I gave him a big hug. And I said, this, this is why you come to a meeting. Did you know the guy? No, I was at a Saturday meeting. And he just looked at, so he, he just looked at me and I said, this is why I believe in God. That's wild. I'm frustrated. I'm upset. I go to a Saturday meeting. The guy out of the blue walks up to me and puts his hand on my heart and says that. That would freak me out. But that made me feel good, too. It made me believe in God, too, even more. It's another one of the four million examples where I'm like, see, Mike, you're going to be all right. Nothing as profound has happened to me in a meeting in the last year as that. Just walks up to me yeah. and does that. I'm like, and that, there's 70 people in this meeting. Yeah. I didn't say a word. All I did was say my name and sobriety date. He walks up to me and does that. What has been your most profound experience working the 12 Steps? Probably the ninth step, doing the amends. Can you read it? Made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Okay, tell me about that ninth step. I had done so much damage to my family that they wouldn't speak to me. I mean, literally, the, the my daughter and my wife were the only two that hadn't given, and my dad were the only two that hadn't given up on me. I don't think my dad would ever give up on me. My dad doesn't give up on people. Literally doesn't give up on people. My wife is a saint, hung in there. Why my daughter hadn't given up, I don't know. My son had got to where he wouldn't answer my phone calls because of the damage done. I had to call my wife to call my son to answer my calls when it was something important that I need. I had to talk to him. I had to call my wife to call my son so he would answer my call because he sent me the voicemail. It wouldn't return text, anything. 
Just absolutely not. So we're going to Kansas to see my in-laws. And he and I fly to Kansas City, and I've got him. It's a two-and-a-half-hour drive. I didn't do it on the way up, but I did it on the way back. We drove from Kansas City to Kansas. We had a great weekend. We're driving back. I got him in the car for two-and-a-half hours. I did the amends. And I told him everything I've done wrong. And he said, can you pull over? And we pulled over, went to the gas station stuff. And he gave me a big old hug, and we talked, and he says, I love you, Dad. Just don't ever do it again. You're forgiven. I accept it. Was he crying? And were you crying? My son's not a crier. Yeah, he's really not. He's were not you? I, I, I was crying. Yeah, I that's was crying. that's amazing. Even through all that, we've always watched the NFL draft together. Now we watch the draft together. We do everything together. I mean, we still talk together. We're on a fantasy. Now he, we do more things together. He texts me. He's so busy. But if I text him, he calls me back. How many years sober when you when you had that nine step experience with your kid? Probably second year. Terrified, absolutely terrified. A lot of the guys that I sponsor today have children, so they're fathers. And guess who's angry? Their kids are angry or damaged, and their wives are angry or damaged or gone. They usually start looking ahead in the steps as we're moving through the steps, and they see that ninth step, and they're like, "Yo, Mike, uh, guess what, bro? I know that we're on step four and five right now." But I'm looking ahead and I see that nine step. What am I going to tell my kids, man? What am I going to say to my kids? They're eight and 11. What am I going to say to them? And the first thing I tell them is, I got you. God's got you. It's going to be okay. Slow down. We're not at nine yet. Let's work these steps in progression. I promise I can help you with that. Guess what? It's going to be easier than you think. Guess what? Your children love you and want nothing but the best for you. They just want to see daddy okay. They just want to see daddy not drinking anymore. No matter if they're 24 or 14 or 4, they're aware of what you're doing and the damage that you're causing. But they are genetically engineered, even the adopted ones. They love you, man. They love you and they want nothing more than to see you succeed and and to get good traction and move in the right directions. So most of the time, it's going to be easier than you think. Sometimes it's not easier than you think. Sometimes it's going to take years. My sponsor, Jimmy Daniels, who has passed away, did not really get strong, strong connection with his kids uh, to his level of satisfaction until he had 16 years sober. Now, that's a lot of people that have two years sober don't want to hear that. Most of the guys that I sponsor, it's it's easier than, than they think it's going to be. Do you want to take a quick second to give a shout out to your uh, kids by name and your wife by name and tell them you love them? Because there's a chance that they're going to listen to this. And dude, it might be 20 years from now. It might be after you're gone. It might be tomorrow. I don't know. But if you want to take a second to give a shout out to your kids and wife and tell them you love them, go ahead and hit that. Sandra is my wife. Seth is my son. And Shelby is my daughter. I do love them. I love them to death. That's so cool. They're going to be able to hear that and like... 20, 30, 40 years, your grandkids are going to be able to listen to that. It's going to be amazing. Can you tell me about your best day of sobriety? It's the day I did the amends with my brother. My brother was born deaf, and so he was in hospital a lot. Uh Do you know sign language? Does he know sign language? No, he he had tubes and stuff, Uh and so he had a lot of surgeries little, and so I was really kind of like his caretaker and helped him and I could translate and he learned he he wasn't really born completely deaf but they had to do immediate surgeries to put tubes in his ears and stuff and mm-hmm. he learned to read lips and stuff it was real early up until probably six or seven years old he had real speech impediment went to speech therapy and stuff 
And I could understand him perfectly and translate for him up to like six until everything started working out. And then somewhere when we moved from Lake Highlands to Sunnyvale, I started hating him. I don't know why. I don't know what reason. But when we went to Sunnyvale, something happened in my heart that he became my enemy. I don't know what for, but for 33 years, I didn't like my brother. And it's nothing he did. He has no role in this. So when I got sober and found God and made the amends, and he accepted it, I lost it. I'm about to lose it now. And he said, you're forgiven. I got my brother back. A brother that I drove a wedge in for no reason for 33 years. It was absolutely the best day of my life. And so you knew you needed to do that, and you would talk to your sponsor, and you told him, this is what we're going to do. And he's like, yeah, go get that. And go do no, that at, at three years, I said, I fucking hate him. But at one year, I fucking hate him. At two years, I fucking hate him. At three years, I fucking hate him. At four years, he's not so bad. At five years, I love him. At 10 years, he's my best friend. That's the transition point of, of sobriety and, and staying in the rooms and staying in the fighting trenches for getting closer to our new life and letting go of our old life. It's just a process, you know, and there's a guy named uh, Terry and he goes to the Aquarius group and he always talks about, he says the same thing all the time, man. It used to make me mad, but now it doesn't make me mad. It makes me happy. He just talks about giving yourself the gift of time, time, time. It takes a long time. But most of us, it takes a long time to reach a place of figuring out what what is true serenity, what is true forgiveness, what is true harmony with our brothers and sisters that are on this planet with us, what is a healthy, loving relationship look like with ourselves, with God, and with others. And it takes years for most of us, years. And that's the exciting thing about being sober for a couple decades. I kind of can look back over my life and see the transition from the old Mike to the new mic and the admission price a lot of times is pain. That's unfortunately, and I'm not excited to say that out loud on this podcast. It's just the truth, man. When I look back in hindsight, the admission to a new life, a lot of times for me is pain and confusion and consequences because I don't know why (laughs) I don't know. I don't have an end to that sentence. There is no, because it just seems because that seems like the way that it is. And Pain seems to be a great motivator for me and a great persuader and a great hammer, which allows me to uh, become cognizant that I might need to take a look at a certain area of my life and think about it and address it and be different, you know, just be a different guy, have more forgiveness, have more love and have more patience for my fellow man and realize that a lot of times they're not doing it to me. They're just doing it. And nobody's perfect, including me. And I'm not God. There's all these little tools, these little leverage points that I can incorporate into my life to make my life easier to where I can be comfortable in my own skin almost all the time, which has been a residual side effect of being sober and going deeper spiritually is I, I'm comfortable in my own skin almost all the time. And I'm super, super excited about that. Do you have any contact information you'd like to give out to our listeners? Any email addresses or phone numbers? What do you think on that? Damon, D-A-M-O-N, at FFC1, that's Frank Frank Charlie, the number one, dot com. And my cell phone's 214-908-8544. 
I'm going to read something I don't believe I've read on this podcast yet, and it's called The Twelve Traditions. These are the Twelve Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wanted to put this in y'all's ear and see what you think about this. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends on AA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants, and they do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, unless problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, AA should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, AA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, AA has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Eleven, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We may always maintain anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. So I want to slide back over to you and see if you've got any final parting thoughts you'd like to talk to our audience about today. Keep coming back. They will love you until you love yourself. And that's what they did with me. I came in there, wanted nothing to do with y'all. Thought y'all were weird, different, screwed up, and oddballs. And y'all convinced me I'm just another bozo on the bus, man. Just love me until I loved myself. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly what happened to me. My alcoholism and drug addiction, uh, I I painted myself in a corner, and I was forced to come to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't really want to come here. And uh, it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me, man. And I was not thinking that was going to be what the deal was. I never wanted to be an alcoholic. I never wanted to have to go to AA. I never wanted to have to talk about God or believe in God. But when I look back on hindsight in my life, those are three of the best things that ever happened to me. You know, I was listening to an earlier podcast, mm-hmm. and y'all pointed out exactly what happened to me. I walked in. I sat real close to the door, like all newbies do. And then I came in the last minute. I left at the first minute. And now I sit right in the middle, right at the front, right in the heart of the meeting. I get there early. I stay a little late. I hang around, I go to lunch, I do everything that y'all told me I needed to do. Because in the earlier podcast, you said, newbies sit there, you get there, you bing, bing, in and out. Mm-hmm. I don't want to mix, I don't want to meet. And y'all invited me and said, hey, man, why don't you hang around and come to lunch with us? Why don't you be part of us? Why don't you be part of the membership? Because the first word in the first step says, we, we. And I didn't get that. Now I can't get enough of we because this whole thing is a we program, man. You know, I, my phone is full of phone numbers that say Preston or AA or Lake Highlands Group. And I could probably half my contacts are AA people. All of my friends are AA people. And y'all have saved my life. And you know, y'all gave me hope. You gave me serenity. You gave me peace. 
I had none of that before I came in here. And it's, it's changed my life. You know, I used to think Scott was the most corny, hokey, full of crap guy. But he says, this has been the best year of my life. But he says it every year. He's been saying it since I've known him. And it is. It's the best year of my life. Right now is the best year of my life. My business is hurting. I've got more crap going on than ever. But I ain't in control of this stuff, man. I yeah. wake up every morning, I turn it over to God, and it's the, today's the best day of my life. Yeah, you just went through that period of heavy depression earlier, you know, and so it's like, yeah, life still keeps coming at us 100 miles an hour. There's a guy at uh, Clean Air North that always talks about, hey, you know what, just because we get sober, guess what, life is still in session. Life is still in session. It's still coming at us 100 miles an hour. But the cool thing about being sober is you can – access a bunch of spiritual tools which allow you to do say think and feel things that you didn't used to be able to do i'm glad you got sober dude it sounded to me like you were heading down a bad path with all those blackouts and all those drugs and it just sounded like you were going to a really bad place and i think god identified you and saved your ass he did people keep telling me the longer you get sober the harder you got to work and, you know as i come up on 10 years I would say, no, no, it's supposed to be easy. You know, about about a month ago, I was like, no, no, it's just ten years. I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to be coasting, man. I'm supposed to be guiding, but it seems like they're all telling the truth. The longer you get sober, the more you got to put into it, and I'm putting more into it now, a lot more than I put into it day thirty. And you know what? I'm getting more out of it. The yeah. more I put in, the more I get out. I thought at 10 years, I'll be coasting. No, no, no. I'm busting my ass. That's part of the reason that I like to um, be sober and I like to go to meetings is I don't think I'm trying to have an ego or be arrogant or anything like that. I think I'm really trying to be of services. I want to show people, especially young guys, younger men, what an AA success story can look like. I want to be of service to them and give them hope because when I got here, I was hopeless, man. I was hopeless, and I had to visually look around for people that were sitting in that room that had what I wanted. And I want to be there as an example for these young cats that are coming in in 2022 and 2023 and 2024 and 2025. I want to be here for them to show them, you know what? You don't have to live like this anymore. You don't have to drink like this anymore. And, and, and even more than that is you can have like a great life. You can have a beautiful life. You can have a life full of love, forgiveness, and, and hope, just like me. And I didn't used to have that. I used to be homeless. I used to live at the YMCA. I used to not have any hope. I used to be a super bad dude. And now I've made a, a transition into where I am today. I want to say something on this podcast, and I've been thinking about this, and I haven't talked to anybody about it. This is just, I'm getting ready to let a thought out of my mouth that I have never spoken to anybody about. And I don't know where it came from, but I just want to tell you all this. So I was involved in a drunk driving accident when I was, let's see, I was probably like 24 years old. And I've never told anybody this story. I was involved in this drunk driving accident when I was 24 years old. And I won't go into the details and all that, but there was an 18-wheeler involved, which was the other car. And then it was me in my car with my college roommate, David Glidden. And we were in a 300ZX twin turbo and I was drunk and I fell asleep. And when I fell asleep in this 300ZX twin turbo with David Glidden, I drifted. I was on a highway. I was on a highway and I drifted underneath the back set of wheels of the 18 wheeler because the 300 zx twin turbo is a low car it's it's not a low it's not a very tall car and so i was able to as i fell asleep and drifted under the trailer of the 18 wheeler i went underneath it 
And then the top of my car, the sunroof, eventually grazed the bottom floor of the 18-wheeler. And as soon as that happened, I was fully underneath the 18-wheeler trailer. And when that happened, my car spun out. And the back set of, I guess, I don't know how many wheels are in the back of an 18-wheeler trailer. Two, four, six, eight. Eight. I I guess there's eight. Yeah, all eight wheels. The car spun out, and all eight wheels ran over the car that me and my homeboy were in. And I don't... I was drunk and I was asleep. So I don't really know exactly what happened, but I do remember waking up with the car vertically standing straight up and down where the headlights were standing. I was sliding along the highway at 80 miles an hour with my headlights (laughs) shining down into the ground. And then we came down, the back set of wheels came down because it crushed the engine to about, I don't know, 11 inches tall. The front wheels and the front engine were crushed down to about 11 inches tall, but the passenger compartment, the back of the car were still intact. And we went up on our headlights, vertically spun, and then we started spinning and doing 360s. And we ended up in the ditch in the medium heading backwards. Somehow, miraculously, I was not injured, nor was David. We were both shook up and I came to quickly and I, I was like, oh, my God, it was dark. It was 3 a.m. And I looked around the car and there was uh, weed, uh, alcohol uh, and weed all over the car. And my first thought was, I've got to the, the highway patrol will be here in a minute or two. I need to get out of this car if I can still walk, which I didn't know if I could or not. And I need to get all this illegal drugs and weed and um, beer and all this stuff out of this vehicle. And I need to run up into the forest and hide it before anybody stops or the highway patrol gets here. Anyways, I did all that. I got all the uh, marijuana and the um, alcohol up into the forest, hit it, ran back down the car. The, then then the, the, they showed up, the, the, the highway patrol showed up. The reason I'm telling you that story is because I am super, super surprised that I was not killed in that accident. I deserved to, I mean, how many people you know go under an 18-wheeler and get run over by the back set of 18 wheels in a small sports car and live to tell about it? So I've thought about that quite a bit over the last 30 years. That accident was like 30 years ago. And I think, why was I not killed in that accident? Why was I not killed in that accident? The only reason I can come up with is that my higher power, my God, has more work for me to do here. He's not done with me. And he saved me from that night so I could help people. So I could be of service to people and continue to do something, whatever that is. And I don't know what that is. Maybe it's being a husband to my wife. Maybe it's being a father to my son. Maybe it's starting this podcast, which will reach thousands and has reached thousands and thousands of people across the world. And that's something that I kind of am leaning into and believing that, that this podcast and being a father to my son and, 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 a, and a husband to my wife is maybe three of the huge reasons why I didn't die that night. And that's just something I've been carrying forward with me the last couple of weeks in my head. Not that I'm wondering, like, why am I still here? Why am I alive? It's not like that at all. I'm a happy dude I'm almost all the time. It's just that I have been thinking those thoughts. And I just want to let you all know that it's been a pleasure doing this podcast and, and talking to my friends. And it's just, been, it's just been fun putting this thing together. And I think maybe the reason I wasn't killed in that drunk driving accident is so we could be here today and talk and do this. Because our little talk here today is going to go out to thousands and thousands of people. And I hope to do many, many more of these and put together a big, big repository of, of talks that people can hear in the future. So that's all I really want to say about that. Thanks, brother. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Glad play. you're here. <laughs> Me too, man. Me too. I'm super stoked to still be here. It could have gone 
Could have gone really bad that night. Yes, sir. So I want to read something from page 164 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is called The Vision for You. And then we'll get out of here and see you guys on the next episode. I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been a really enlightening experience and super, super fun talking to you. I've learned more about you in the last couple hours than I've known in the last couple of years, so I'm super stoked. Okay, a vision for you. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we only know a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road to happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Thank you for joining us on SoberShares. Please go to our website at SoberShares.com. Reach me on email at Mike at SoberShares.com, and we'll see you all in the next episode.